All right, we're live. Welcome everybody to our sixth episode of Six on Six. As you can see from the bottom, it is Six on Six on Six. We have a very special edition and something that maybe we will be continuing onward with providing this works out quite well. Today we are joined by four of the finest coaches uniting us from across the globe. And if you're uh, if you're watching this live, feel free to participate in the chat. If you're watching this later on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe. Uh, it really helps us out. And then if you're listening on Spotify or Apple, give us a thumbs up or whatever people do on that. Anyway, we'll start with some introductions in the top left and the top right. It's uh, Troy and myself. You should know us from the podcast so far in the middle between the two of us is the uh, the final boss himself, Dizzle from APAC. He has been a longtime coach of Fnatic, one of the most successful teams from the APAC region. They are now competing in APAC North up against the best of Japan, Korea and Southeast Asia. He was a former player on Mind Freak as well back in the console days. In the bottom left is none other than Pojo Man from TSM, a former player on teams such as Flipside, SK, and Dark Zero, as well as TSM. He's now moved back to coaching after stepping off the bench for a short period of time. Down in the bottom middle is one of the most storied coaches and probably the most successful, I think we could say, G2's own Shass. And I mean, he doesn't really have much of a resume other than one team, but boy, you have an awful lot of trophies in your closet, Tom. And then last but not least is in our bottom right, none other than Twister, former coach of Ninjas in Pajamas, FaZe, and now currently the coach of Furia and one of the most popular and well-known coaches in the Latin American region. So welcome, gentlemen. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us. Uh, it's 4 a.m. for Dizzle. So I uh, I figure we'll, uh, we'll start with you in that case. Mm. And the one question that we ask everybody when we begin is for players how did you get your start in this game it's pretty intuitive they start playing they're good they keep playing but for coaches i think it's a different story so dizzle your origin story actually brought you into the game as a player but then you transition to coach do you want to walk us through it uh sure yeah i um initially played rainbow six on xbox um i started off playing with like my destiny clan um, when Rainbow Six came out, being a, a long-time Rainbow Six fan with, you know, Raven Shield, Rogue Spear, and, and the Vegas series. Um, so, yeah, we just sort of picked Siege up in, in beta um, and sort of played together. Um, sort of stuck with it for a bit. And then, you know, before we knew it, when, like, Season came out, Rank came out, we were, we were constantly on top, stayed with them. Won the uh, the Six Invitational qualifiers uh, in, in ANZ to go to the first Six Invitation, 2017. Um, and, yeah... After that, they were canceling the Xbox, moving to PC. So we decided that we'd probably look to make that move. Um, and then upon sort of making that move, I had life commitments and, and, you know, just as a transition to PC, I didn't really have the time necessary or probably the the um, the drive to, to be at the highest level as a player. So I looked to effectively pick up a few PC players and put them on the uh on the team and move towards a more of a coaching and management role so um i want to get into each of your background stories separately but i think the best way to go about this is to have everybody just kind of talk once and then we can open it up to discussion after that so the next one we're just going to go in the alphabetical order of regions so the next one up is going to be tom if you don't mind sharing your story as to how you landed in, as a coach uh, so I'd always really massively been into esports. Like first of all, I was watching League of Legends, and then Siege came out, and I kind of found that right from the beginning, uh, 
you know, two months in, I could see, hey, look, this has got great potential to be an esports. Fell in love with the game as well. And I just decided straight off the bat, hey, I'm going to go straight into coaching because I kind of know my own strengths and weaknesses. And I know I don't possess the good qualities that make a player, but I know I possess the qualities that allow me to organize players, uh, strategize and keep them on the straight and narrow of, of, of winning and performing, right? Uh, so first started out in the second, well, we qualified with Phoenix in the, into the second season of Pro League. So I coached the players. It was Fabian, it was Moodens, it was Forenzo, Flowies, and KS, I think, as well. And we got into the Pro League. It was all hunky-dory. And then, unfortunately, some of the players wanted to go and play Overwatch. Then we got kicked out. And then we got picked up by Penta. And that's really where my story has been uninterrupted all the way until now. Because I've stayed with that solid roster uh, for quite a while now. Next one up is short Twister. That was short and sweet. I liked it. I'm sorry that you had to spend mm -hmm. so much time with Fabian. But other than that, we can get into it later on. Twister. So I started playing a game back there in 2016 when I was at an event uh, here in Brazil, like Comic-Con experience. And I just liked the game where I started playing with my cousin and we, we both liked to compete on it. It was my first competitive game. You know, I always like to watch CSGO, SK Gaming. They have a big culture here in Brazil. They influence a lot of people to begin in esports. And uh, at my first uh, time in the game, I was planning to play it. So, by, by the way, in the first Invitational, they have a rule here in Brazil that players that are 16 years old could play the competitively. You don't have to have a 18 years old. And, but uh, in the Invitational, we didn't get the, this rule anymore. So I was forced to, to go to other opportunities. So I decided to start coaching because it was a thing that people say that I, I did really well, you know, have some strategic vision of the game, you have more organized. I was more organized as a person to help the team with that. And I gave it a try. So I was underage and I couldn't play. So I decided to start with it and I really liked. So since I began with it, I tried to be the best in it here in Brazil. And uh, Pojo, man. Uh, so I kind of started, I was originally like a Dota player. Like I played a lot of Dota and then like, I, I was on like some amateur teams for that. And then, uh, I don't know. I picked up siege in the alpha. I thought it was trash. I went back and I played the beta and they fixed quite a bit of it. So I was like, Hey, this is pretty fun. And then I don't know, it just seemed like a game that that would be a lot more fun with people, like in an organized environment. And I was clearly right because ranked is terrible on your own, as everybody knows. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we played a f couple of Go Fours and then uh, I joined like Mint and then we made Pro League Season One and then, you know, then Dark Zero, SK Gaming, and now I'm on uh, TSM. I started as the coach on like Accelerate Gaming and then I had to play. Then we became TSM, continue playing, and now I'm back to coaching. So, Well, it's quite a story from all of you. And it's funny because almost none of the four of you had the same origin story. You all came from different spots. Uh, so the first question that I'm going to open it up to, I suppose, is did you, did you expect to like coaching at the beginning? Is going to be question number one. And then the follow-up to that after is, 
Have you continued liking coaching and has it been easy to like your role or have there been challenges so far? And I mean, we can open it up to whoever wants to go first. Um, yeah, look, I, you know, I'm a fair bit older than, than most. Um, so I'd had a lot of life experience. I'd managed staff, I'd managed companies prior to this. So like one of my first management jobs was, was at Domino's. Um, which was one of my first jobs and I worked there for several years and then I was running a store there. So like I'd had management experience managing like young teenagers, you know, 14, 15. So I figured it can't be much harder than that. Right. Um, and, but, you know, I come from a sporting background as well at a pretty high level um, in, in my teen years and, and early adulthood. Um, so I'd sort of like had a skill set for, for managing and coaching anyway. So I, I sort of knew what I was getting myself into. Um, and as far as like continuing to enjoy it, I think like it's super rewarding, you know, to, to be able to, to take like young guys and, and sort of mold them and develop them and, and help them grow through a lot of like their formative years. Um, especially doing something like as, as cool as we're doing it to help them like see the world and sort of grow into, to really good people. So I think that the reward that you get from coaching is what keeps it worthwhile. Yeah. There's, there's tough days, there's stressful days, there's long hours, but at the end of the day, I think it, it's definitely a lot more worth it than most traditional jobs y'all can jump in don't be scared yeah i'm curious to know like if the rest of you i guess if you like enjoy coaching for the same reason like like that's the first thing i would think of is that mm -hmm. it would be rewarding to kind of like teach people basically um like that that's always how i've seen coaching i know i would like it because of that and i'm just curious if if it's kind of the same for all of you if if it's the same reason you guys like coaching, if you like coaching, I'm assuming you guys. Do. Yeah. yeah but like seeing your team get better is probably the one of the most rewarding things, like seeing progress, like going from like losing rounds. It's like, Oh, why didn't this work? And then you slowly, the team kind of figures out and it's like, Oh, okay, well now we kind of understand what's going on. Like that's really rewarding, I think. And I think the biggest thing about like switching from a player to a coach is I, I didn't. I thought it'd be less stressful, but I find it actually a lot more stressful being a coach a lot of now. Beyond your control, right? Yeah, like you can't affect the round at all. Like you just have to watch it unfold, and you're like, ah, shit. <laughs> it's like if I was just there, I could, I could say something. Now I don't even get a timeout for Christ's sake. So I just gotta sit there and scream at my monitor. Yeah, I really like the impact that you can have with the tactical pause as well. In the middle of the game, you can, you know, uh, show something that your players are not seeing it because they are in the, the match, so then they can see the, all the scene. So the, this way that you can help the team and be impactful, even with just uh, showing something that they, they should see, but they, they cannot, it's really, it's really good. You know, there's a good feeling that... Uh, you you are helping the team, uh, perhaps uh, no matter no matter what's happening in the game. It's definitely the best job I've had so far, uh, and I think one of the things that people don't realize is that when you do the thing that you love, there is is going to turn into it will eventually also turn into a job. There's going to be things you dislike and there's things that you like, right? Uh, the biggest thing for me is because uh, mm -hmm. kind of like my forte is doing strategy. So I'll go away, come up with a load of things and then propose that to the players is watching the progress with that, watching them understand that and learning how to like change all the different parts of the chessboard to fit the situation. And then the bit that I don't like is waking people up if they need to get woken up. <laughs> late. But 
you want to uh, you want to tell people what you went to school for and were probably going to go into before you did coaching? Nah, nah. You don't, you don't I don't wanna... need a break. I don't need a break. Nah, I don't need a break. Uh, so I did a master's in aerospace engineering. So I did like lots of engineering, airplanes, then did a little bit of satellites, and then that's kind of why I do the coaching in the way that I do it is more like strategical coaching and then the generic coaching on top or the like the mentality and, and the kind of philosophy of teamwork a master's in aerospace engineering i mean you say bragging right but that's pretty much half of the southeast asian pro leagues doing that currently yeah <laughs> that's true, true. Yeah. um i think this actually leads into the next question and major props to troy actually for putting most of these questions down um because both of you talked about tactical timeouts here. And if Troy, you had a, you had a good question about this. So please feel yeah, free to dive uh, into this topic. I mean, I guess the basic of it is like, when do you guys think is a good time to call a timeout? But just in general, I guess, just how do each of you kind of view it? Like what, what's, I guess, your main purpose for when you call a timeout or are there multiple? Um, I'm just curious to hear like everyone's different takes on it. Cause I know some teams definitely view them differently. Like the amount of times, like I'm sitting with, with like Lycan and Sov, and we're sitting there watching other teams play, and then we're, they take a timeout, and they're just like, "Why did they even take that timeout? Like that wasn't that wasn't a good time at all." And then like I've heard that from other teams as well. Teams probably say that about us. Like I'm just curious to hear everyone's take on it. Um, I think for us, like I always try and give my guys like the benefit of the doubt and the trust that if it, they're bleeding a little bit, they'll be able to come back from it. So sometimes I'm guilty of not using them uh as proactively as i could because you know you're sort of hoping even if they go on down three rounds at the start they can sort of bring it back maybe get a couple and then you can save it for a really impactful one towards the end of the game uh so i've generally tried to give a lot of faith in my guys that they'll be able to like because we don't prone like to tilt all that much and like their mentality is pretty strong as a group um so i think for myself it's usually when i've noticed something or i'm trying to get them all back on the same page for like one or two really impactful rounds um, so I can sort of deliver as much as I can for the following two rounds, three rounds that it might be in terms of like pattern recognition or, or just really giving them time to get on the same page, think things through, take um, take a bit of time to communicate and then take those three rounds as if the last 10 rounds haven't happened and let's just win two of the next three or the next three. Um, before we, we before we hop into letting Shaz talk here, this is actually a very interesting one because it's something I noted about your team at SI and I just pulled out my SI notes actually. Um on cafe, you won seven rounds in a row against Empire. That was a hell of a match. When you were lose, when you were playing on Clubhouse, you took a timeout after you went up six four. You lost the immediate next round, then you won the next one after it. This is just going to be a, a question that I wanted to ask very quickly. Was I've noticed before at, at different events, you tend to take timeouts really late into the game, like one, two, three rounds left, and that's when you'll drop your timeout. Whereas most coaches take timeouts like either right at the half or after losing like two or three big rounds and some of them take the timeouts really early on so it's i just wonder your thought process on that because you said you're not prone to tilting but i mean i remember the days where your team would end up losing a couple rounds and then just mentally get knocked out of the match so so uh, yeah, like i said are you oh, talking to me or shas i was talking to you diz oh sorry um just, just one uh, side say, question Shas, here. Shas called his two rounds in. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, um, 
Yeah, so it, yeah, early on, we definitely were. Um, we had back then a different team, uh, different communications, uh, a lot more quieter players. Um, whereas, you know, since, since then, and I only speak like mostly recently, um, it's, you know, we've been very capable of clawing it back. Like you look at the, the phase game, for example, sorry, Twister, but you know, like to be able to come back from what, five rounds down to seven rounds straight. Like I have a lot of faith in my guys that they, they have to be able to do that. Um, and, and they do, and then I can, then I can use them quite impactfully. So I think for myself, it's more like, um, putting my faith in them that they'll be able to like recover because most, most of the time as well, like the conversations that they're having in between rounds and, and the feedback that they're giving doesn't really warrant, or there's not as much impact I'd have by calling a timeout then, unless I really just wanted to stop the bleeding for like a minute. Um, but when I do tend to call them late, it's very much about setting a win condition over the next few rounds, getting them all on the same page for like the next 15 minutes. So I just think in terms of the overall impact, in terms of like the percentage that of input that I'd have, I feel like when we're in those scenarios, especially with like a match point or very close to match point, there are a couple of rounds behind, but they're starting to get a bit of momentum. It's easier to hold their momentum and get my guys on the same page than it is to call a minute, stop the 304 or 03-04 bleeding and have something impactful to say that's going to bring the next three. And generally when that's happening as well, right, you're 0304 down. I've only got one or two rounds left to talk about attack. So it might be worthwhile to let them go. And then we're moving on to defense, try and start strong there. So it's a bit of a gamble. It sort of really depends on, on where it's at. But when you're sort of onto the fourth round thinking about calling a timeout, there's only one or two attack rounds left. So there's not too much input that I'd have, I feel, overall. Thank you for that. Sorry about that, Tom. I knew that you're up next. I just wanted to ask because. It was a decent question. So now, sorry, sorry about the, just back to back to Troy's point about uh, the, the importance of timeouts and when you take them and why. Uh, I mean, there's really only two reasons I take the timeout is either, as Diz was basically saying, you've you, the team encounters something which they're not able to solve themselves and discuss and work out like the an appropriate response to. And then the second one is if they tilt, because if there's an emotional out outbreak and it's not being contained and it's spilling over into other rounds that's when for instance like Diz was saying I've had to take we've been taking timeouts nice and early before in like SI and the last few events everything else you sometimes need to take those timeouts nice and early just to get yourself back on track so you can be mentally uh, cohesive as a group so Twister yeah, I agree with that. Most part of the things that, that they say, because uh, given the other side view from the phase uh, fanatic game, that was pretty tough for us because I guess we had the match points on, on six or five. Uh, I, don't, I don't remember well right now. But the thing I remember, it's, uh, we, we were doing really, really good in the game. You know, we were progressing, we were getting maps that we needed, the domination, but we, we couldn't be able to to get the execution of the bomb site you know we couldn't get to to plant the bomb site and the players were were getting tilted about it so the thing is you have to get a better time to call this call out to to get all the shit to bring all the shit together you know you get the players to the same page as they said and you have to to give them confidence that they can finalize the that rounds because sometimes that's the most difficult thing 
you have to to call for it to to see if there's some some mistake in the tactic or to to fix some some player behavior or to you know you have a lot of di different time timeouts that you can call it so you don't have a receipt for it uh, in the beginning and in the IP the most time of timeouts that I called it was to remember for uh, the tactics you know I had to say, oh, no, you reinforce that wall. You you have to bring this operator on, on this this kind of game, and this changes in phase because they were way more uh, disciplined in the game, so they remember uh, everything as well. So I have to give this callouts just to bring them back to the game, and it's a different situation here in Furia as well because it's a younger team, uh, more unexperienced team, and they have to to have a lot of help. So I have to be more incisive in the game to bring uh, different kinds of lectures to, you know, to, to give play styles uh, of them to adapt and to give better chances to win the rounds, you know. That's an interesting point that you make. Um, and honestly, I, I mean, it was kind of surprised to hear, and we'll, we'll touch on this after, after we're done overall, but it was, it's interesting to hear that, you know, FaZe were far more disciplined, whereas you had to take timeouts with Nip to remind them of what seems like basically, you know, very simple strats. So uh, that's something we'll come back to. I'll let Poge get the last word in here, and then we'll go to just open conversation. So like, um, timeouts for me was mainly about, like if I'm seeing something that's like consistently happening, like an issue that we're running into, maybe I'll take a timeout, even if it's early. But typically I'll try to, you can like, since you can hear what your teammates are saying, you can kind of get a rough idea of if they're on the right track. Like if they lose a round to something and you noticed it, but they're talking about it, like I'm not going to take a timeout and say the same thing they just said. Like if they, if I think they have a pretty good grasp on what's going on, I just let them, let them do it. But if if I notice we need like a like a mindset shift, like if if it's just if our current strategy isn't working, if we need to be more aggressive, less aggressive, stuff like that, like I'll I'll toot a timeout and be like, okay, this is obviously isn't working. Just being like playing this set way, we're gonna have to change something up drastically. That's when I usually do a timeout. All right, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've done a lot of talking, so I'm gonna let Canadian drive the discussion on this one. No, I I, I just thought it was interesting hearing them all. I I do notice that like there's a like most of them were honestly around the same page, but there were like some different ones. Like Pojo, for example, like didn't mention like the emotional kind of thing, and I think that depend. It really depends on the team. And like Twister said, because he's coached multiple different teams, it's different for all three teams the way he took the timeouts. And I feel like that's, I guess, a large part of it. It's just a matter of like the issues that can be presented within your team. Maybe you have uh, someone that gets emotional. Maybe the team can get quiet or tilted. Maybe, yeah, they, they, they're just struggling with whatever it is in front of them in terms of strategy. But yeah, I just thought that was interesting. Um, yeah, sometimes you just need to do like a timeout just to get the comms flowing kind of thing. Like yeah. sometimes people are just like, really tight on their communication not like saying everything that they need to say and like micro calming everything so yeah. sometimes that's what you have to do but that one i find that one's kind of rare for me but yeah that's it can't happen that's one of the bigger ones for us is that's like a big sign when liking calls a timeout is 
if like we have a quiet round basically then he calls one because he can tell like things are things are probably about to start going downhill so just kind of cut it cut it early hmm. but yeah from an outside perspective it seems like if the comms fall off in space station something is terribly wrong knowing the chatter boxes you've got on your team yes <laughs> <laughs> i mean rampy doesn't stop talking period so that's I mean, that doesn't change. That was evident on but, the very first episode of this that we did, where I think he was actually coming in clearer for the final 30 minutes of the show. Yeah. But um, the question that I want to ask is actually to the person who's is to Twister. So I want to go back to the point that you made, Twister, about Nip and FaZe and now Furia as well, how that's changed. Because from what I understand, the Furia team is the is the youngest of the three rosters, the, the three big rosters that you've coached. So, I mean, you've already alluded to the fact that FaZe was more disciplined and you would often take timeouts for maybe more emotional moments. But how does that compare Nip to Furia to FaZe? How do they all differ? And how do you best approach coaching all of these teams in a completely different way? Uh, I guess in the beginning with NAP, I was almost in the beginning of my career. So I, I had no, no much experience in coaching people, you know. I, I tried to maintain me more exclusively into the game strats and trying to give them my point of view on, on that way, trying to get them back to the strats that we preset and all that kind of stuff because uh, I didn't really have so much experience, you know, to, to bring to them, to bring to the table because, as I said, I was younger. I was 18, I guess. And that all changed with face. I guess it was the best, uh, the best way to coach, because uh, in the middle of the games with the tactical timeouts, the the only thing that I that that I could do to to help them it was with the outside view, uh, with the game and about all the stress that the other team were doing. So uh, basically, when we got a tactical timeout, we tried to do uh, a totally different stuff in the other round. And that worked because it was uh, analysis based, you know, and just to bring them back from a tilt or for, from, uh, you know, from a bad game, from a uh, bad sequence of rounds. And I guess this is the best way that a coach can help a team in, in the middle of the game. And right now here in Furia with all these young players, I have to do basically all of it at the same time. I'm, I'm like, uh, as I, I am the most experienced in there, I have to bring them this confidence. I have to bring them this this view of gaming, you know, this game knowledge. I have to bring them all the analysis-based stuff. And the hardest thing is to bring them the, this confidence, you know, because as, as, as I can say as an example, in the, our last game, we were almost all the rounds like uh, four two, four v two, or three v one, and we lost that rounds because the experience and the codes, you know, the codes, the players were not having it. So that's the most hard thing, uh, you know, to bring the players back to the game, to give the players this confidence to win rounds that they should win, but they were not winning, and that's the the the, the worst thing of all of it. But as I say. All these three different experiences, I liked it. Uh, I'm enjoying Code Fury as well to have the have seen his progress and seeing everything they they are allowed to achieve now. It's really I, I'm really thankful for all of it. You know, it's, um. Now, Tom, 
you had to coach uh, probably one of the toughest teams and one of the toughest players in Fabian. Now you don't. How have things changed just simply with that one roster move alone? How have things changed? Well, Fabian was a very demanding player. He he was very set and certain in the way that he wanted to play the game, and like the character, the figure alone was was very dominating of the of the space. Let's say, so he had a lot of say, and often I would have to, I'd be having very long conversations of like how we want to play it, how we want to address this, uh, you know, down to every single detail. And that's something that Fabian was great at because he would be willing to sit with me and, and listen to me ramble for a good you know hour and a half about something um the difference is uh it's a lot more fluid the way that we work now we can kind of springboard off of each individual player rather than having just a central central voice um the atmosphere is a lot more different because we started having a few internal issues between personalities and everything else so it's been a relief in that sense, I guess. Not a, the fault of Fabian or anything. It's just that these are just the way things go. Some people just end up frustrated with each other and some differences cannot be resolved. So it's, 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 it's been a lot less stressful. It's been a lot less stressful, but it was also enjoyable as well with Fabian. But it, it was a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of explosions, let's say. Mm-hmm. But th those can also be fruitful and they can, you know, at the end of the day, some of the best conclusions you can come to are at the end of an argument about something very minute of how to throw your flashbang into a room. And when, when you actually finally go through it and you, you, you know, you spend 40 minutes talking about it or going through it on the server and you can say, hey, look, okay, we've agreed to do this. And then we then, you know, do it every single round and it's beneficial. It's mm -hmm. like a minute detail. I can see that. But yeah, it's definitely beneficial having having those disagreements. I mean, that's that's part of growing as a team. But I will say, I I can see the other side of it as well, where like it, it's not gonna if if things are too abrasive, like it won't work forever, right? Yeah, so, yeah, very very much so. Yeah. Uh, but I I don't know. I think Fabian's gonna do pretty decently. I think you just need to give him a little bit of time in Vitality. It's just I think because so I think that's what they needed. They needed that central voice to push him with one direction throughout the game i think so as well i mean fabian even talked about that when he was on here he said that you know there's a lot of teams that lack strong leadership and he, he pinpointed the vitality before he stepped on as being one of them as well right like nothing nothing against bibu it's just is bibu going to be you know that the person to marshal you to victory and back the same way that somebody as you called him you know a dom or a dominating presence like fabian will and the answer is probably not mm -hmm. oh when the when the bullets are flying like are you counting how many drones you got left what your utility is everything else where the locations of all your players are like it's really easy to miss it when you're on the front line so you kind of want that mid mid formation or back line to to kind of give the calls yeah that's where fabian's kind of been falling in in their formation mm -hmm. so um, it's definitely it's definitely more difficult trying to trying to play entry and stuff in IGL. It's a whole different beast now that I'm I'm sitting there on hard sport and it's it's a lot easier. Oh yeah, you can see everything. You don't have the bullets flying at you, so yeah, yeah. I remember the days when we used to talk about fragging IGLs 
you know, Skies was a good example of it. There was a long period of time where you were that along with NVK, Troy, and it was just mm -hmm. like I couldn't I couldn't imagine how difficult that is. And the one thing that everybody came back to was like that vision that Tom alluded to. Yeah. Um how much do we think the how much do we think the lack of a timeout other than very convenient rehosts? Um, how much do we think the lack of a timeout online hurts versus when you see online and you can take the timeout? Is it more difficult from all of you to effectively coach knowing that you don't really have a pause? I mean, we yeah, all, we all, we all know teams sucks. take convenient rehosts for timeouts. So, I mean, it's, let's just, we don't need to touch on it, but I mean, some people's computers just randomly explode sometimes when they're down three rounds. I don't know how that happens. It's crazy. Oh, we just lost four in a row. We're getting smoked. I got the sound bug. Oh, okay. That sound bug. That's a real thing. Nasty. I'll have you know. Sometimes you just die near a mute jammer and your sound's gone. Yeah. It's not my so, fault. Sometimes it happens at a really good time. Yeah. Sometimes, just, sometimes yeah. mute's not even in play and it happens. And then we need to restart the lobby. That's crazy. <laughs> no, no, that's a Zoe's sound bug. Oh, yeah, yeah. My, my bad. Zoe's always there. Yeah. <laughs> How much, uh, how much does it hurt though? I mean, and, and is it silly? I mean, well, I, you don't need to admit that you've taken it, but I mean, I've had players at after parties tell me straight up, like, yeah, we've hit the router or yeah, I feel like, you know, yeah, we've taken timeouts cause we can't, you know, you can't pause the game live, but it's, it's like, I, how much does it suck not being able to take a timeout? How, how much harder is your job online than it is on LAN? because of that i think it's I think it's really dependent on the team right it depends on the mental fortitude of the team and how well versed you are strategically like how familiar you are with the situation because if you're familiar with the situation you're good to go you know the response that you need to do as a team and if if you're strong mentally then it's not going to be an issue for you so it's really team to team and it's whichever one is better in those two categories that's going to get punished least for it right right because as Pojo said, like for coaches, it's always going to be stressful coaching because you either have no timeout or you have 60 seconds to talk to your team. So it's just, it is what it is. Yeah, I've, yeah. I don't think I've ever been able to have a technical tactical timeout, but <laughs> I mean, they always happen against me. So that's always fun. But um, not being able to, I think the biggest thing online is whenever like, let's say you're just having, like, a rough, like, attack side, or just even, like, a rough day. Like, you just, you'd have no opportunity to to even, like, try to stop it. Like, you're just, you're just fucked. And ESL, or not, I guess not ESL, my bad. Face, it's just like, <laughs> <laughs> I did I honestly didn't mean to say that, but it kind of makes the joke even better. But, um, yeah, like, not having anything is just like, oh, my God, like, you can't, like, you can't try to do anything to stop it like you're just you're just dick like if they're just in the wrong headspace for that map you're just like well better get the next two maps i Tough mean at map. least we have a best of three yeah <laughs> unlucky yeah. boys <laughs> get them now get them on the next two yeah is you've been quiet what do you think i mean it's you know we we're all in very you know, some of some unique positions right like um for a lot of the guys there they're in either hqs or sometimes like gaming houses and stuff like that but for us like we're spread out all over the country we play online like now we can't even like sit in voice comms so you don't even really know apart from just seeing the three minute delay if they even need a timeout so i mean our entire structure is sort of based around not having it and then like we have these formats that 
create this environment that then take a team to land where all of a sudden like you can have really impactful timeouts but you just never used to using them right so you just have this complete discrepancy between the way we qualify for these big events where you can do all these things as opposed to what we can do at all these events so it's yeah doesn't make a lot well, of you're sense, not allowed but... to listen in on even the comms no no, really? one, no one's in the voice channel huh because mm. we're we're allowed to be in there and well, like we're allowed to be in there and listen but we can't say anything yeah i mean uh, it's yeah for us it's so. it's out of there so i mean we could probably like try right but then we need to have admins sort of sitting there with us and we're just yeah that's what we have we have an admin in there making yeah, sure we yeah. don't talk to our team even though yeah. i could just send them a message anytime i wanted to yeah or if you're in a team house you can literally just like yeah, write on a piece of paper exactly and it, right? stop peeking dumbass like yeah <laughs> <laughs> For us here in BR6, we are allowed to stay in the in the voice channel, and we are allowed to play, to talk with the players between the rounds, you know. So we can talk uh, some some like to 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 them and to to speak some some stuff with them to to adapt and that kind of stuff. So we don't need to to get this tactical timeouts. Do you not think that's harmful? Because like I was listening to Dizzle and he's saying like the way that they train, the way they've set everything up is is uh, to not be dependent on a timeout right and it's the same for i guess for everyone and i was going to say that's great because you only have 60 seconds anyway so you, if you reach uh another issue the second issue you're not gonna have a timeout for it but do you not think it's going to be a problem if your team becomes reliant on you to be talking between rounds in br6 and then go into lands where you only have that 60 seconds it's it's kind of very difficult to to get all the all the things that you have to say and resume into 60 seconds because when you have a fluid game and you can talk you like you know uh, between rounds you you can show some points that uh, are are more smaller than other ones so when you have just 60 seconds you have to resume everything and try to focus on one thing that you you believe that will be better for the team to come back but on online events, uh, when you're allowed to talk between it, you can focus on smaller things, as I said. So you you can have better games with that and more participative, participative games. I mean, I definitely... Like, I see the advantage to doing it, like, short-term, but I do agree with Shaz. Like, I, I'd be scared of building, like, the dependency on it. And I've, like... When I first joined SSG, I, I think it was, it was Luke that did it. And I, he didn't really know at the time. But I, I think during one of our matches last season, like he said something mid round, and I remember I like said I was like Luke, I like I I know it's important and we might be missing it, but like I don't want to hear it because if we get to land, like that's not going to happen. We only get the timeouts that Lycan can call. And yeah, and I agree with you. Sorry about that. I agree with you, but on the situation when you have the a younger team, yeah, <laughs> I can see I can see that side to it. Like you want to get them to like the foundation or like a certain yeah. level first and i just i do worry that it could build that dependency like like but tom was saying it's, it's an arms race though right if you think about it because if, if everyone in br6 can do it then yeah yeah because exactly. in phase uh in the past uh we were i guess in the br6 on not br6 the probably we were allowed to to talk between rounds but i didn't do this because the team preferred to get a more uh 
uh, more similar to the LAN events, you know, because mm. we used to go to more LAN events. We we had to practice this uh, online to do this at LAN. So back at that time, I didn't do this that much. So, but right now, with a younger team, I guess it's a better way to to get them to the right track. And uh, from there, I start working on a different way, you know. Mm -hmm. I think it raises. I think it raises an interesting point, though, what Tom said about do you want coaches to be more vocal? You know, and it's it's actually a conversation that's come up quite a lot. There have been teams that have said, you know, why can't coaches talk during the prep phase? And there, it's been a spirited argument online, and it seems to resurface after every major event. There's a number of teams that think that it would be advantageous to have a coach talk during just like the prep phase and setup phase and then have their mics get muted during the game. And I'm just wondering what what the five of you think in regards to that argument and where you fall on it. Do you think it's beneficial or do you think it's something that shouldn't be allowed as it isn't as, as it's currently not allowed right now? I feel like that almost opens it up to like almost IGLing at that point. Because yes. like you could call like a whole setup for your team, yeah. like every round if you wanted to. So yeah. I wouldn't really agree with that. No. Yeah, um, I don't know about prep phase. I think maybe like operator select phase, if we could speak during that, if you wanted like had something interesting that you might want to call instead of like so you can call for the sixth pick or you could call for like a different lineup or maybe you can call like let's bring these five operators push this way. Like maybe you could have like a, a small impact, like not a complete IGL, but you give them sort of a foundation of an idea or, or like, hey guys, we're really struggling with this. Let's make sure we're bringing this and this. But yeah. outside of operator select, I don't think we should speak. Yeah. I I Definitely think it could be scary to give coaches too much time to talk because then it, it would become like the coach would become an IGL basically. And then that would kind of phase out the role because teams would start to just do five, like five just star players kind of. And then the IGL would become the coach. And it, I think it, or one of the coaches, but the coach that can talk, I guess. And you just got uh, mid round calls. Yeah. You just, someone just has to handle mid round calls, which. I think like that that's not a big big deal. I think someone mm. could handle that for sure. So uh, I like what Dizzle suggested, but I mm -hmm. think the issue with that is that it's still you have qualities where you can IGL still a little bit. You can still call it in the operator pick. The the only part that I would like to be able to talk through is the banning phase. The operator yeah. banning phase. That, that is yeah. the only part where I can I can kind of accept that a coach can be allowed to talk to. And then as soon as it hits into maybe, I don't know, like five, 10 seconds after that, and then it cuts off. I could agree and with then that. you've got your timeout. Because that's, yeah, like, that's, that's like that's like macro problem. strategy. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. It's, it'd be, it's the same as like the, the coach can be there or usually is the one doing it when you do map bands, right? So I feel yeah. like it's kind of the same sense just because it's, yeah. it's the macro kind of strategy. And I think like as the conversation is developing now, like with the meta that we're in and with probably the need for like more operator bands and, and, and things like that being considered, I think that would be, I think almost a certainty that we should start to explore, like no matter how, which way we go with the bands that, yeah, maybe exactly like a league draft, right? Like the coaches can look after most of that and then they leave after the draft. Yeah. Um, I think that's a good idea. I like that. What are your thoughts, Twister? 
uh, I guess that uh, it's important to to build to IGLs that can can think straight in, during all the game. You know, to get uh, uh, arrangement ideas, to to get the people think the the same way that he is, and to bring the people back to the game. But uh, being allowed to talk between rounds. It takes uh, away more minimal suggestions to the team. That, as I said before, some some kind of stuff they they are not not seeing it. And you from outside the game, you you can see it and you can give a suggestion to them to to get it. But I agree with Troy. I guess the best way that you can work with it is get a good IGL that can manage all the situations and that can bring the view of the coach from what they talked before the game, you know, and the impacts of the coach just in the tactical timeout to, to bring, you know, solid things to the to the match. Mm -hmm. See, I'm actually going to come down on the, I guess, the unpopular side here, which is where I, I've never really understood. Like, I, I understand the argument and I get why people don't want coaches to be more hands-on. You know, the good example was a lot of people love to talk about CSGO where the coach was allowed to talk and it, it kind of removed the in-game expertise of your your IGL, your in-game leader. Since everybody always asks what IGL is, I figure in-game leader. Um, but I come down on the side where I don't think coaches, coaches have as much of an impact on game day in the match as they do in the build-up to it. And especially online, you know... In, in BR6, in, in Twister's position, he's talking about how we can make comments and we can kind of iron out small details and things like that in very small increments every, you know, every single round. Whereas, you know, barring a, a very convenient rehost, you can't really do that in North America. And, you know, you can't do that. And even the other, like Dizzle even said, we can't even talk in the same channel, right? We can't even hear them. So the thing for me that I've never really understood is why coaches don't have more hands-on, uh, I guess, leadership during the game day, especially with how technical this game is. I think it's impressive that IGLs are able to call on the fly, and I think it does definitely raise the the ceiling for some teams by having an IGL who can essentially pick apart their opponent while also in the server. But I think that, for me, I would have no problem with coaches being able to talk during you know the prep phase or even the operator pick phase and be able to call out strats and things like that, because we see it, you know, coaches in lots of sports will literally call the full strat and they have playmakers and they have offensive coaches. The NFL is a big example of this where it's like, you're calling the play, you know, before anybody even gets on the field or they're on the field and you're the one calling the play. So for me, I think it could raise the stock of coaches. Not that coaches are already underappreciated, but I think you could see a larger impact if they were allowed to, to weigh in even during the operator pick phase or maybe expanded to the prep phase because of the vision that they have of all five of their players that the that the leader the IGL might not have being so close into the actual action I agree that I think that if you were to allow coaches to talk during the like during the prep phase you would see a much higher level of play like there'd be a lot less mistakes cuz even at the high level like there's an abundance of mistakes from each team they're just very very small but it's, it just comes down to, I think, whether you value the soft skills of the players and not just the shooting capacity of the players. Uh, all those, all the time that you spend discussing uh, the advantages and disadvantages and the different setups depending on the operator bands and across the myriad of bomb sites and maps. And that's kind of where I 
put put my my weight would be that I want to value the time that I spend talking about that and kind of let the bird fly when the when the game goes rather than constantly uh, kind of putting my input in because I think the better team should be the, the better five players which can recognize the situations as well as PP. Mm-hmm. I, agree. I think it takes away from like, yeah, like Shaz said, those soft skills, like your support players who are doing all the fucking grunt work and actually like droning everything, holding the flanks, calling the strats. Like, it, I think it takes away from a lot of that because, like, if I could talk mid round, like, I could see every flank open at every time and just be like, you know, throw a drone there and somebody, this guy, watch this for X amount of time. While this guy, okay, we can go execute. I can call the execute three, two, one, fucking hit it. Like I think it would just take away a lot of the coordination from the five mm-hmm. players if you had one dude that just didn't have to worry about anything and just sat there and coordinated everything. Yeah, I th- I think it takes away from it, and uh, I feel like it would make the game a lot simpler. Like genuinely, I don't, I don't think I'd be a pro anymore if you allowed that. I don't think I'd be a pro player anymore. I wouldn't. There'd be no reason to have me on a team. There wouldn't. So I don't. I, I can't. Honestly, I can't. Like Some, I, sometimes you still shoot. I see you sometimes. Sometimes, but like there's other players that they, like my team could get instead that could shoot like that all the time. Like that's true. You could be sitting there telling exactly. Joe I could Blow become a coach. toaster who's rocking my shit and ranked. You could tell him throw a drone. Yeah, yeah. That's it. True. Just it takes away from it, and I I'm not a big fan of that. I think the game would become too simple because yeah, part like part of what's so difficult about it is you have to do like, you have to notice all these problems and like see the overall game while you're in the game under all that pressure. Like it's, it's a lot more to process while you're a player. Um, It's a lot harder to see the bigger picture. And I think that, yeah, like that, that kind of skill shouldn't just be kind of tossed aside. I feel like. Yeah, definitely. I think some of the most, recognizable players that have built their careers off being exactly that kind of player that's like set them apart from any other team is by having like key players like that and it's something that like players can aspire to be but if you remove that like players like like the canadians and and the fabians and the penguins and stuff some of the biggest players that we've we've ever had like the mags like Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's a big core of what separates siege yeah i I think if you had that i don't think you'd ever see a flank get off successfully yeah Like, like You wouldn't see any like cool flanks, like two man flanks and stuff. It just, it wouldn't happen. Like whoever's at IGL, like coaching, wouldn't. If yeah. it happened, it would be like a huge blunder. You would be like wow. There would be a lot less fundamental mistakes. Like, yeah, there yeah. wouldn't there wouldn't be as many holes in the flanks. Um, people wouldn't double drone things. Like, yeah, so you wouldn't be wasting drones. Yeah, uh, it would be pretty crazy. And I mean, like, executes would be crazy, too, because, like, smokes would be called perfectly. Yeah. It'd be a different game at that it would point, be. I think. Would it, it be would a be. better game? That's a different question, but I don't know. It would definitely be different. I mean, I, 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 wouldn't, I would never advocate for coaches to talk in live action outside of the prep phase, but I just, uh, what you're describing is, to me, is, like, it, it sounds better like yeah it sucks that flanks can't go off but you know there's obviously major weaknesses that teams commit because they miss things i mean we've seen games where 
people just don't even run optimal operators. And for whatever reason, you know, they're just getting their shit chewed up by a maestro or an echo or a Valkyrie. And then people just don't run an IQ or they don't ever look for it or drone for it. Sorry. Oh, they're running IQ. Yeah, they're running the <laughs> they're G8 now. The scanner. <laughs> IQ gets banned. They're just popping on the Amaru. But no, it's it sounds like a lot of those little mistakes that are committed, which are actually quite larger mistakes in the grand scheme of things, wouldn't would be would be done away with. And it's like, yeah, I I do agree that you don't want to coach IGLing in the in the thick of the match. But I think if a coach can say, all right, you know, round six, I want to see, you know, this setup, run these operators, blah, blah. And then that's it. And then just go to town. I still think that there would be room for somebody like you, Troy, to call in game and still go off of that. You know, I, I think I think the issue is uh, maybe this might sound a little bit backward, but if you do that and with the way that I think the bands are going to go towards operators in each game, what you'll probably see is more landslide rounds going back and forth, right? Because that you recognize after one round, okay, what's the common theme of how they're like trying to defend this or, or attack this in a particular way? And then you'll just hard counter that. And then what the other team is going to do on the other side is then constantly shift. So you're just going to find landslide rounds one way, then landslide rounds the other way back, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Because you, you, you as the observer are going to be able to recognize like exactly where the holes are, then yeah. you'll fix it, and then it will go to them, and then they'll all to theirs, and then you you're blindly going to do generally the same thing again. So I think it will go back and forth in landslides if if that if yeah. coaches are allowed to speak during prep. But like, like that's what happens in real sports, though. So why can't it happen in in esports? I do see that argument. Like that, I feel like there's less what... room for creativity though when you but, have that so but then it's it just comes down to like a coaching a game of... right like yeah and then how do, is that what we want yeah like i mean I, I how many iconic sports matchups are determined by a two amazing coaches literally trying to out coach each other you know we don't really have that in rainbow six like i mean yeah everybody knows like you four coach great great teams but n- you never hear a narrative like oh my god shas out coached pojo man in that matchup like, you just don't hear it right because we can't tell and coaches don't have that same kind of a minute impact or immediate impact. But I think I, think uh, I can I, tell, but the thing, yeah, like but some people can tell, but can. also I guess the effect that you're talking about, like that's had by IGLs and people don't notice that either. Like, right. There's, there's been times where I've watched games and I'm like, I like, I can clearly see like that the calling is winning them the game, but no one notices it. Everyone's like, that guy had a nasty shot. Like, no one knows. Yeah, that guy ran in and shot three people. It's like, yeah, maybe they actually saw something. Like, they saw three people upstairs, and he ran in and took the site. But yeah. like, I, I do see your point, though, Parker, because I was, like, while you were making it, I was thinking the same thing. Like, it, in real sport or traditional sports, like, that, it's a thing ac- across the board. Like, coaches yep. can always communicate the whole time. But, again, I think even something, yeah, as simple as being able to talk between rounds just someone that has all five perspectives, it's such a big advantage. And like, I, I genuinely think what, something that makes like an IGL good is being able to, between rounds, ask the questions to fully understand those five perspectives. Because like, that's how I get my like calls off is I always ask questions. Like when we lose to something, I'm like, Rampy, how do you die there? Like, and I want to try to understand it so I can try to figure out how we want to deal with it. And I think trying to have 
to solve those problems quickly on the fly and kind of get the missing information just from communicating with your teammates. I think it, it's a lot more challenging and I, I like that part of the game, but like, obviously I'm biased. So yeah, but I, I, I think it's interesting to have that kind of dynamic and have that kind of skill set that's necessary to be one of the best teams. I think that's fair. Um, I'm, I'm not, it's not a hill that I would die on either way. And the one thing that Kix and I have tried to talk about, but even for us, it's not as immediately evident, is the calling that goes on and around. And a big part of why we don't talk about it is because there have been times in the past where we have made comments like, you know, this team, whoever's doing the calling, like nailed it. And then there have been times where a team is just utterly imploded or they've run up against the exact same strat, you know, three times in a row and failed to adapt. And we'll say, oh, you know, obviously the calling was shit. And then we'll get flack for it being like, well, actually the calling was fine. You know, as a, as a salty player, we'll watch it back and be like, Fabian literally did that to me once. I can't remember what it was. It was a G2 match. And he's like, well, he's like, I called it. It's just like somebody peaked and died early and then the whole strat fell apart. And I'm like, well, it sure looked like, it sure looked like the calling was poor. But it's just like for me, I you know, coming from both coming from both like the NFL and the NHL, I love the stories of two amazing coaches going up against each other because it's not just all the coaches, though. Like, obviously, you've got like your captains, you've got your quarterback in the NFL. They're going to still make calls. They're going to call audibles based on what they see. And that's to me, Rainbow Six as an esport parallels the most with the NFL. You know, it's it's a lot of theory. It's a lot of strategy. It's a lot of setup, very limited action. You know, the NFL is like one quarter of the actual game is quote unquote action, which is very similar to us. If you look at our games, you know, you've got like 30 to 40 seconds of action each round. But there's that long pronounced setup in between where I think you have a coach line up the strategy for 30 seconds, whatever the start of every single round. And then once you actually get into it, that's where the IGL can call the audibles. That's where the IGL can start to set things up and make changes as you're droning in and, you know, going through the discovery phase or you're on defense and, you know, you see the way that you're getting droned out and how they're how they're trying to take map control and enter. That's where an IGL can really step up. And I think it just to me, it would just increase the skill level for coaches. Because not that I think that coaches are underappreciated, like I said, I just think that they have a very small impact or smaller impact than they could during the actual game. And like I said, I know it's not, uh, I know it's not like a, a popular opinion, but it's just, that's how I, that's how I view it. And I'm fine if, I'm fine if you all disagree, but it, it, as a caster, I think it'd be cool because it's another talking point for us as well. And it's a lot more evident, um for us when when a coach makes their impact than it is for an IGL and like I said we've been kind of reluctant to talk about in-game calling because when we've done it in the past we've had players and teams get angry that you know oh well it was actually called well or oh well it was actually called poorly and you know we just and it's like whatever I think you could get away with something like you're talking about if you could maybe like almost like your timeout you get one you can pick one prep phase to be like you can talk about this and then do it but I feel like every single round would be a little overkill. Yeah. Because then you could actually see the direct impact if you had, okay, let's say uh, Lycan's talking on this uh, character select and prep phase. Then you can see the direct impact maybe from what he said to that round. Mm -hmm. But I feel like all the time would just be 
a little too much. Yeah. Could be. Yeah. I but, don't know. It could it could also just be resistance to change, just because yeah. it's the way it's always been done, so we just want to stick to it. Like I agree that it's gonna raise the level of play. Mm -hmm. But I, I just think it just it just comes down to that kind of feel like not the let's just say the philosophical base where I put more stock in training the players to know how to respond and to recognize things. Yeah, I agree. Just the way I see it. Somebody in but chat, I agree, it would probably be better. Somebody in chat even said this in the NFL. Only the coach can talk to the quarterback. Maybe it's the same thing. Maybe you know every round, the coach can talk to who the IGL or the captain is. You know. Yeah, I mean, I think that would be okay because then. It's up to yeah. the IGL to like convey the message and whatnot. Yeah. Still, like every and round, as long as forty it's, seconds. It, it well, it could even be something brief. Then, like I, I think it could be interesting if it's like a very brief window where the coach could say something quick to the IGL and then like he has to say it. Because if if you give the coach too much time, then the IGL will just like repeat what he said verbatim, right? Whereas, I, I feel like it's it's more of a skill to be able to like say something quickly to the IGL and then they have to kind of expand on it to the team. Um, I feel like that kind of showcases skill in the role more. I mean, I, I'm like proud that I'm an IGL obviously here. So um, <laughs> like, like I, I want, I want the role to remain kind of in the same spot it is, but uh, I, I definitely agree though. Like it would, it would raise the level of, of play, uh, like like you said, like Tom said. Um, how much does it help? How much do we also think it would help just to be able to have a weight off the IGL's shoulders? And this is the question that I think Twister can answer pretty well because he, he experienced it. You know, being able to talk and settle people down and just like be a calming, mature voice being able to address your team when shit starts to go real bad or, you know, they start to the tilt and they're not very disciplined. How, how helpful could that be? Being able to speak to them regularly. I believe that uh, you can show them that kind of confidence and that kind of calm, calm voice that they can hear and they can see and think uh, someone is calm here so I can follow his voice, I can follow his mindset and I can, could get this game back. Uh, about this this lead subject, I uh, I say I can say that in here in Brazil, we started to have more active uh, coaches like this last year, because before that some teams don't doesn't even have a coach. So with the beginning of that here in Brazil, the level of gameplay in uh, from all the players uh, could start growing, because some teams didn't have a coach, so a player had to study all the other teams, has to prepare the games, study the video and do all this kind of uh, stuff and he couldn't focus on his uh on his own uh, gameplay you know he couldn't improve as a player so so that uh, that showed us here in brazil that we could achieve another level of playing in the game with a coach doing all this job uh, uh, beside the players and that that's a thing that can that we can ask if uh, the level of the gameplay of all the players in the game with all the coaches um, talking between rounds and all that kind of stuff uh, would make the would make the IGLs lose their mindset and their capacity to to help the team between rounds because they were too comfy on have the 
the coach uh, notes, you know, or they they could improve to something else to help the team in other ways, you know. Yeah, I mean, I I could definitely see that side of it, and I I do think that would be a relief. I'm I'm still in the same boat where I th I think like Tom said, it's like resistance to change, but I do think that would be. Like, it'd be nice to not have to focus so much on, like, trying to keep morale up or, like, maintaining, like, emotional balance. Like, I know for a fact, like, if Lycan could talk between rounds, like, it'd be so much easier on me because I'm, like, he's far more patient and uh, less emotional than I am, right? <laughs> right. Whereas, like, me on the other hand, like, I have to really focus on it and, like, try to maintain emotions and make sure, like, that, that I'm kind of keeping everyone together. I think it would be a lot easier to like, yeah, just have kind of like it handling that, of course. But then again, I I feel like that does take something away from the players, right? Like I do think yeah. it's it, it's valuable to have that skill, and I guess like when you when you have players that have that skill to like maintain their composure and all that, it's not as it's not like as valuable of a of a skill to have anymore, and it's just kind of whether or not you you want to maintain that or not i guess yeah i agree i do think there's some uh, merit uh to the argument that it has been presented quite a lot about how though if you do have more of an active coaching role eye jailing will be less important and i do agree with that and i want to i just want to be on record saying that i don't think that it's going to be as crucial as it is right now you know obviously you're not one of these cases troy even though you you said that you are but there are very definitely players that get picked up and are known for igling that don't really put up much in stats and don't really win their gunfights and i i do i do see coaches sort of causing those players stock to drop and maybe you don't exactly pick up that player anymore because you've got a coach who can handle most of those responsibilities and maybe somebody is a you know is a worse igl but is a significant upgrade in game so you roll the die on them and just have the coach take on more responsibility right so i do i do definitely think that there's there's some merit to that and and like i said it, it could be resistance to change maybe we don't need to put so much on the shoulders of igls and maybe you can still show off your your stuff by being good at your role, but allowing the coaches to do more. I I don't know, but I don't play nor coach this game, so fair enough. You know, I don't know what most of the time. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. I agree. That's true. That's true. Yeah. This is true. Yeah, I just I value that part of myself as a player more, so that's why, like basically having to give it up almost like that would feel like shit to me so that's why that's why i'm so against it i don't necessarily think it's going to detract too much from igling because you've got to adapt and still you know collect information do make decisions with that information it's just that soft skill of composure and like um, a higher macro level when it comes to okay okay this is the lineup what are we going to do what are the bands and kind of deciphering through that it just offloads part of that and the and the soft skills. So fair enough. I still think there'll be good IGLing. But I just like I said, I like the idea of good coaches immediately influencing a game. 
Um, I think the next thing to discuss now is, is I don't know about many of you, but I have found that the new format and regionalization has made watching Rainbow Six professionally extremely tough because there's just so goddamn much. Like There is a lot. It's it, it it's just like every day I wake up and it's like I get it. I'm I'm happy for it. But it's like I wake up and I'm just like, oh, there's another region playing right now. And it's just like it's overwhelming. And I remember the first week I was trying to was trying to watch as much of it as possible. This was before Latin America had even started at this point. Like it was just APAC, EUL, and, and NAL. And I just like I remember waking up and I was like, Good God. And then even today, like BR6 is going on right now. You know, like it's just there's so much to watch. So for the people that don't consume every single match, I think it's important. And let's do this. Let's do a region roundup where once again, starting in the same alphabetical order, go through where you think your region is at right now and the unique characteristics and and strengths and weaknesses that you foresee and how that will translate, providing that we have it to the major in the summer. Um, where we're at right now, I mean, as you know, we've, for the most part, like APAC North is, is the big focus, uh, which will, over time, make it, it stronger, more competitive. Um, previously, most of the sub-regions that were existed were very top-heavy, so you had like a few teams vibe competition and the rest just sort of like existed. Um, so now you've got a lot of those top teams that could sort of like be a little bit complacent and still hold their spot because it was just a matter of making like top two, top two. Um now they sort of need to fight constantly to to be on the top um with um i guess the we've moved into a best of one format uh we play a swiss system as opposed to a league system uh which is a bit unique i think it stems from um just how many teams we have because we've got 12 teams instead of like the eight or the ten um so i think with the swiss system it was just sort of something to to try and make the games as competitive as possible um, every single play day, which I think we've seen a lot of the times. A lot of it's like seven fives or eight sevens or eight sixes. So we've had a lot of like really close matchups because every single matchup is uh, is quite competitive rather than having like a blowout. I think there's been one or two that have been a bit of a blowout um, out of, you know, probably 40 or 50 games that we've played. Um, so I think that's a big benefit of the Swiss system is every matchup is, is very close and, and quite exciting to watch. Um, as a region, I still think we're going to be a little a little bit behind in terms of of development um, because, you know, we've always started from behind, especially with North America moving to their land league, best of threes. They're effectively, like, training for majors every single game they play. Um, so, and, and, and I know EU suffers sort of from the same BO1 format, right, where BO1s can come down to a lot more about map vetoes and, and operator bans and, and you know momentum swings whereas best of threes rely a lot more on like the the fundamentals and, and long game plan so i think until like we're all in that same sort of like if majors and invitationals are are really the premier events uh then then north america will will always should always have the advantage over it it's a safe bet we get a lot of pressure on us now <laughs> Every time people say NA is good is usually when we shit the bed, so... Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Stop saying that. Tommy. You gotta be the underdogs. Well, there's no way, um, like, these BO3 land teams lose to BO1 online teams now, is there? I hope well, so. I mean, there was no way that EG lost a Fnatic, but... Nice, man. You just said you had to. Yep. 
It's just, it's just uh, EU is... for the viewers. That's all. Sorry, Tom. That's all right. Um, EU is just kind of very chaotic right now. Uh, everyone's kind of recovering, or a lot of teams are recovering from a lot of different roster swaps. Uh, and I think everyone's still settling in because at the beginning of EU, it was a lot of landslide games. And now it seems to be evening out with a lot more closer games, at least in the more recent week. Um, uh, I still think EU has definitely got like the most uh, condensing of, of talent and competitiveness, but it just, again, like as Dizzle said, like we suffer from the best of one format. So the best of one introduces a lot of variance. Uh, I'm just so jealous of NA getting the best of three. I think everyone is that doesn't have it. <laughs> BO3, it's refreshing. It is nice. It's refreshing. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, I was I was just gonna say, like losing our best of three last week, like it was better than the last time we tied in Pro League. Like tying sucks, man. It's not fun. Tying's the worst feeling you can probably yes. have. Yes. yes. I don't mind ties from a competitive standpoint because I think that if you know I, I would rather a draw than a coin flip not a literal coin flip anymore because now you pick your overtime side based on the map choices, but I would still, from a competitive integrity standpoint, I would still prefer a draw than, you know, a team getting to defend twice on a map that is right at that particular moment, heavily defender sided. It just doesn't seem as I, I know that a win and a loss are more satisfying, but to me, I don't think it's fair. At the same time, I'm also aware of that North America in particular hates ties. They're just, they don't exist in NA. So it's like, like, I get it. I was and okay what, with ties in a best of two. Sorry, Dizzle. Go ahead. You're right. I, just, I think like if ties were allocated more heavily, right? Like if they had two points instead of three, people could swallow that pill a lot easier. Because like the fact of the matter is, is you could win one game and lose two games and be in pretty much a better spot than the team that tied like three games which like is just so unevenly balanced. But if you allocated like two points for a tie, um, because effectively it's like one round either way, right? Um, then it's 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 so much easier, I think. And then people would probably be a little bit more receptive to it because it's like, ah, shit, we tied, you know, but it's only a point. Whereas like to, to tie one or two games, it is effectively like like losing two whole weeks. Yeah, there was, there was it, teams that it's like they they draw like four, like four times, only get one point. And it's like you, like you, you can win one game and lose three and end up only one point behind that team that hasn't lost for, you know, four matches, which is crazy. It's nuts. Yes. I think it was, uh, was it Panix's idea where you remove the draw, you introduce the overtime because there is an aspect of like the map bans. If you have the advantage, you can pick which side. And, you know, if you expect it's going to be a slog match and it's going to go over to overtime, you can, you know, pick the side of corner leads, get the best, overtime side but the point was sorry that if you go into overtime you the winner gets two points and the loser gets one point yeah I so said that, that i said a that a while ago like uh where it's just three points for a win in regulation zero points for a loss and then yeah two for an ot victory and one for an ot loss i think that's a fair system yeah again what Kojo said about the ties in the best of two system it's I guess, in my opinion, it's uh, way more uh, better for the teams, you know, because you play your map, and if you are prepared for it, you win it, but you lose it in your opponent's match, and you you get a point for it, you know, it's it's fair. 
but uh, here in Brazil we have this best of two system in BR6 and we were used to it because in, in the last two BR6 we, we had the same system so we just get everything together in one tournament and we are focusing on playing it so uh, the the big the big great news here it's the the Copa Six the the new tournament that we have here where uh, the top five teams of the BR Six play against the South American other teams in, in a LAN event that we didn't have before we we didn't play Mexican teams and other South American teams before so that that will be the big news here in Latin but about the the properly the BR Six it's not that big news. Yeah, the the LATAM system is is really interesting with the way that they announced that whole Copa thing because it's like you now have a lot of very a lot of complaints about your region was that it was only really Brazilian teams and now you've got Mexican and South American teams that can compete as well and it, I think it's going to be really interesting to watch because just as we're we're seeing now through two weeks uh, with the Canada division there is a major skill discrepancy. You know, and it, when the top team from the Canada division goes to play up against the the U.S. division teams, I uh, I don't know at the moment how well the Canada team is going to fare, and I think the same thing can probably be said of the the, the other two South American teams that are going to be playing, or the other two regions rather against the Brazilian teams. I like to see it as the beginning of everything, just like two years ago when Brazil was introduced to Pro League system, you know. We didn't have the same level, uh, some players, some things were really good, but uh, we we started to understand the meta and understand the play style of the high-level Siege just some time after it. So I believe that we will work the same way for the South American teams and the Mexican teams. When, once they, they start playing against us, they start playing lands, and they start to evolving in the game. I mean, that's the way APAC is doing it as well, right? Like, in, and Dizzle can talk about this, is it's like you start off, Latin America wasn't a strong region when they started because they were still learning. APAC wasn't a strong region at all when they first started, and now they're they're getting competitive. And I think that's the, I think that's the idea behind why they've so aggressively branched out to all of these new regions is because they want it to be a, a global program. And by adding all these other regions now, they've realized that, hey, Canadians are represented in, you know, in North America Pro League, but they could barely form their own team because there's not a lot of them. And the same applies with, you know, South America. You've got this massive continent. And I think, I think there was like one Chilean team in the qualifiers for like the Raleigh major and all the rest were Brazilian. And it's just like, like no, no disrespect to Brazil. Obviously the, the rainbow six scene there is great, but it's like, how do you build Argentinian teams, you know, or Colombian teams or Mexican teams, you know, even though Mexico is technically a part of North America, it's in the Latin America region. It's like, how do you build players and, and, and teams in that region when it's like, they're just getting annihilated by a much larger Brazilian scene, right? So very similar to what we're seeing in a very similar to what we're seeing in Canada with the, the Canada and US division now. So Yeah, I think, I think you'll see oh sorry, shows. Uh I think you'll see like Mexican teams Mexican and Canadian teams get actually decently better relatively quick. Like I think the Mexican scene is actually pretty good. They're not bad by all means right now. Like we've scrimmed a few of them and they're 
they're pretty decent. Like there's a few, there's like a couple like of the top Mexican teams and they'll, they'll do better and have better strats than a lot of like CL teams. And they're not like, they're crazy, but like, you can see like the rhyme or reason to it. It's not like the CL players where they're just one for one, everything. Like, I think as time goes on, you'll start to see more progression from those kind of regions. Yeah, I agree. I don't know. Yeah, I, was, I, was, I was sorry. I was, was going to just... echo exactly what you were going to say. It's the same with the the mini leagues within EU. You have to expose the teams to the higher level play for them to even be given a chance to catch up. Mm -hmm. So, sorry. I mean, I I'm Kix and I are casting Canada and Challenger League on Friday, so we obviously get to to see it all firsthand. And I can tell you this. The two Canada division. I'm sorry to to Ubisoft and Face It who who are watching this, but I uh, I will say that I think there is an uptick in skill being demonstrated when you watch the USCL games, at least the two that we've seen so far, versus the Canada division games. You know, last week's Canada division game on Friday was not. It wasn't bad. It's just it was to me. It was a raw less refined style that was there were a lot of very weird very basic mistakes that i saw being committed versus you know that last dance versus joe esports where it's cl match where i found that the last dance was probably the best team that played that day and that includes the two canada division teams so i i do think that they'll develop faster i think that the point you make is correct you know apac and, and latam struggles were that they you know they are developing as a region, but it's challenging for them to play outside of that region, APAC in particular. LATAM, you can still scrim North American teams. The ping isn't great, but I know plenty of NA teams that scrim LATAM teams. I don't know if you can say the same for APAC, so obviously that was a, a major issue. But the one thing I will say about the Canada division and Mexico and, and the other Latin America teams and even some of the regional teams in Europe is that, yeah, they... They have no excuse now because they're not dealing with ping. They're not dealing with a new meta. They're not dealing with an entire new region. They are literally just subgroups within an already existing region. And I think that's going to help them a lot to be able to get up to speed. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I think the Canada division, it's like a unique situation because there are some good players there. It's just the fact that like it's never been a thing before where all the Canadian players have to team together. Like everyone that was from Canada before, they would just join whatever NA team and usually yeah. it had a lot of yeah. Americans on it. So it's just a weird dynamic. I mean, I think they'll grow. It's just they get affected by it, at least in comparison to like NA or US Challenger League, just because like the player pool is significantly smaller in Canada than in the US. So um it's just kind of how it works out it's kind of weird but like they have a decent understanding of the game it's just it'll take take some time for them to figure things out but they're like they're not horrible but yes i agree they're they're most quite a few u.s challenger league teams are better i would say i, would say I right mean now, i think yeah. and i i think even teams in the canada division are aware of that they they wouldn't disagree with that um but yeah just a, just a matter of time. 
So this gets back to, uh, I want to get us back to our original topic, which is what you see as coaches of your respective regions. What do you see as the main differences? Now you focused on the setups in your regions, but what about the, when you go to approach a team in a different region, are there still regional metas? Do you have to prep for a region differently? Because that was the, that was the question that was originally posed a while back was how do you prep for that? And what do you see as the defining characteristics of your region? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? You know, we've we've heard it talked about endlessly before, but there's never really been a good in-depth discussion as to what sets apart LATAM from APAC, what sets apart NA from EU, et cetera. Um, I mean, I think there is a little bit. Um, and it can be in like the way regions look at maps. But outside of that, I think there's like you look within each region and there's just different metas that are played uh, at a team level rather than a regional level. Um, you know, like DZ played very differently to SSG that played very differently to to Oxygen. Um, you know, G2 played very different to Empire that played very different to like Navi that played very different to BDS. And then, you know, LATAM has the exact same thing, right? Like uh, NIP and, and FaZe very different. Like FaZe play more a European meta than probably any other LATAM team, I think. So I think like we're at that point now in Siege and I think over the next year with, with new operators and stuff coming that we will even more diversify into like particular play styles of teams rather than regional metas. I think APAC is still in that regional meta uh, sort of structure. We don't tend to have those sorts of definitive play styles like a lot of the bigger regions have sort of molded their teams into. We are still very much like an APAC play style. Um, but I don't think like we prep more for teams and their play styles when we're coming to events, depending on if we've got NA, LATAM, EU, as opposed to prepping for an EU team. But we do understand that EU sometimes look at a map a different way to an NA team, but that's about it. And that just comes in their setups and structures or, or what they value in terms of map presence. Yeah, I'd agree hundred percent with that. Like it's more of teams metas as opposed to regions. I think the only region where I would think like, oh, this isn't a certain from this region would be APAC because they sometimes they just come out with some crazy shit that I'm not ready for. So that's yeah. the only time I would ever be like, okay, we got to watch out for some like three shield Finca rush with mm. smoke ban or something like that. That would be the only time I would think like, okay, maybe since we're playing APAC, we got to watch out for that. But they love the every... APAC flanks too. The the four men up one staircase. They love that one. <laughs> Yeah, that that would be the only like regional kind of discrepancy. Otherwise, it's mainly just teams like looking at how a certain team plays something. Yeah, it's it's usually team by team. I think you can you could group them a bit in terms of regions, but it's like you you don't prepare for a region. Like you don't just like prepare for DZ as just like an NA team. Because, yeah, like, there's teams like Oxygen, which are way different. Like, it's not even close. Um, and then, same for EU. Like, prepping for, yeah, like, Navi is entirely different than prepping for Empire. Um, and same in Latin America. I think Latin America can probably get grouped a bit more. Like, when I've played against Liquid and NIP, it was, a, like, a, they're a bit closer to the same, a bit more unpredictable. Phase, phase has always been kind of... Uh, like this said, like more to the European side, and they're like a bit more predictable. They play pretty standard siege, I would say, uh, or at least like what I see as standard siege. Um, they like, they, but they do throw some 
unpredictable things out here and there, of course, as any top team would do. Yeah, I think it's very, very team specific. I guess here in, in Latin, we have this uh, kind of aggressive siege since we were in the beginning of, the, of playing it. So there's some kind of in the DNA of the players here. Then Challenger League, we played, uh, I played with them in the last Challenger League, and we saw the game difference between uh, Pro League and between Challenger League, when teams just want to pick, 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 and just want to do aggressive strats with Rook, yeah, Rook and Doc, and even Frost or Alibi just to, to pick and try to, to get you not enter the, the map, you know. And this is something that's really really weird to prepare for it because when you are trying to look at this kind of game you you have to look into specific spots that you can find uh, a way to win on on that situation and not just count on on, on shots and on bullets and your players aims to to keep uh, to keep winning gunfights and that's pretty weird that i saw from challenger league and from some br6 teams right now but at the most part of the times, it's it's what I said. It's liquid and NIP or even phase uh, playing some some European uh, kind of play, some even some NA kind of play like DZ. Uh, some things here in Latin just like it a lot. DZ strats and they they, they try to reproduce it. It's <laughs> a lot here. So we are in a point that we can't. Uh, prepare for a region as all you guys said we have to prepare for specific things in specific play styles between the players and the coach that are in that in that situation Tommy I, I don't really have anything to add like I'd agree it's like it's you prepare for the team not necessarily the region like we've gone away from like the strict NA and then the very loose and aggressive LATAM uh, and I, you could also put APAC in that as well. It was kind of like one or the other, like depending on the team from APAC. And EU was kind of like somewhere in the middle, right? But now it even seems like a lot of EU teams are tending towards the classical LATAM play where they're playing a lot more aggressive, like with the Ruffle, uh, roster swaps that have happened, like you've got Rogue, BDS, they're playing a lot more aggressive, uh, a lot more as a... Not necessarily relying on like... Uh, like logical strats of Caleb going to open this wall, do that. They kind of group up and they okay, we're going to brute force this one hallway or this one choke point. Uh, so it's just, that's really the only thing I can add is that you, you be always prepared by team, but oddly enough, EU has become a lot more aggressive and a lot less strict on strats. Yeah, I've, no I've noticed that. I mean, I think, well, I think it kind of started as like Empire probably started to fall down a bit more, um, like from where where they formerly were. I would say, and with the rise of uh, what is current Rogue, I think that like when they were the stream and they were starting to like do better and better. I think that's when it seemed to me that Europe got more and more aggressive. I think I feel like the stream kind of led the way. The stream and what's now Rogue kind of led the way with that almost. At least that was like my perspective of watching it. I mean, even Empire now is shaking it up, right? And doing yeah, different it's... stuff, not banning Mirror and then playing some interesting strats and being more fluid. So, yeah, seems like everyone in EU is heading that way. Yeah. 
How does, um, that, how does that develop by region? Does it develop by region or because I mean, the, the one that I really think of is, I mean, there's two that immediately pop to mind. There's, there's like the ANZ style of siege, which was discussed when Magnet was on here and we've talked about quite endlessly. And then it was a major knock against the Latin America region for a while as well, that LATAM would often play and train to beat each other and was quite aggressive, but then that didn't really translate well to the, to the main stage of, of major events. And that was, I mean, that hasn't really been relevant for a couple of years now, because as pointed out, like phase plays a very structured style. Nip is extremely aggressive, but they are now unpredictable as well. And liquid has always had an, an unpredictable factor to them, which has really hurt their consistency, I think overall. But how does that begin to develop? Because with all the time that you spend scrimming in your regions and all the time that you play in your regions, is there not a temptation to play to beat your regional teams rather than prep for outside of that? Uh, I mean, somewhat. I think it comes from exposure, and I can only speak from, like, spending so much time in APAC and then going to EU, right? And we go there, and, and things have changed, and we learn from it, but we do notice, like, a pattern. And like Tom said, with how aggressive they'd become, we'd notice that in scrimsy you had gone from like uh okay everything's like covered there's very little opportunity to disrupt like whether it be their setup or, or to execute on like their their roam or their presence and then stage two was the site we'd noticed that now it was like wherever you came from if there was one or two people there then all of a sudden there were four people there and they were starting to just match numbers with numbers so i think it just came from personally i i can only look offer from my perspective is it seemed that all the teams were doing that and we naturally did the same thing. So when they started putting more numbers there, we just started putting more numbers back. And that's sort of how we learned very quickly in Europe is it just purely came down to like the entire refrainability. Um, and that's how we adapted quickly in Europe. Cause like, we'll go over for like two weeks. And the first week we won't win a map. We will just get smacked day after day, scrim after scrim. And by the end of boot camp, we're starting to take maps and we're starting to, cause like we learn and we develop over those few weeks, but we only have a short amount of time to do it. So we just sort of like match fire with fire as it was. And then, you know, you sort of learn what happens when those things happen. And then you sort of take away from that. Okay, well, this is what happened when we did this. And then you can sort of theorize around, well, what if we started to, like we, we do this and then we change this and then what happens? And then you just sort of like expose yourself to it. But I feel like in the midst of exposing yourself to it, you do sort of take on a few of the traits. That's from my point of view. I don't know if yeah. Tom can offer more insight into how EU's changed. I I just think that the region in general has come to the conclusion that it's more beneficial to get man advantage rather than utility or anything else. If you can break that, obviously breaching is its, its own separate topic because if you can't get through that wall, you're going to be running into a very few choke points. But I just feel like we were a very structured region and then that structure and uh, predictability lent to the fact that people would know what you would do so then they could adjust for what they anticipate to do so the natural progression is to become more chaotic and play for man advantage in the early round yep i na has gone through like the same kind of thing with as you where it's like yeah i think teams have respond like Teams like DZ and like us, I know teams kind of responded, I think, initially to our play styles to like, yeah, just go for man advantage because that that was at least like my take on like how you would try to beat former Empire or like 
the former iteration of Empire and when when they were in their prime and whatnot, I would say, um, is that you you go for man advantage because you just you don't want to face them in a five v five like default execute because that's what they want, right? You don't want them to play their game basically. And I think yeah, the, the game kind of starts to change in in the sense that yeah, people just play for man advantage and then you have to change how you're playing to deal with that. Or you have to play like that as well. Um, so yeah, uh, and and has gone through, I'd say, a similar process. Yeah, I think a lot of like the formerly lower NA teams kind of realize like the only way to beat SSG is to like do, don't let them do what they want to do, or else they'll just win the round. Because I'm sure Sav has a spreadsheet on how to win the round with five people up. So. <laughs> We got to make sure we disrupt that process or else we're going to get smoked. So I think a lot of teams like like EU, Tempo, they just said like, well, we're just not going to let you do what you want to do. Like we'll do whatever it takes to just make sure you can't set up your execute or else yeah. we'll just get slaughtered. So, yeah. I mean, and now teams like that are more structured kind of have to adjust to that. I think as long as you adjust or play a similar style, you, you're, going to be fine like i know tempo we didn't really have i i would say we didn't really have much issue with it we kind of knew a lot of teams just show their hand in scrims now so we just kind of watch and go okay so that's how it's going to be on game day and then we just get ready for that like tempos just we watch them when we're when we're scrimming and it's like okay one minute hits they're gonna hit the site like it was just a guaranteed chala set it one round in our match Boom, it happened. We're like, look at that. Wow. So it's just kind of like a teams are like hard countering each other. And I think that's kind of where the aggression kind of comes from in NA. Like you just can't, if you're on defense, like you're going to win defense by just getting a pick or even, even man count 3v3. You got a way better chance of winning than a 5v5. Yeah. 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 You mentioned like, teams hard countering each other and this was kind of like the point you brought up parker with teams trying to beat their own region more so and i think i mean that's a natural like that's a natural reaction like i mean to make a land right you have to beat your own region so that, that's kind of gonna be the reaction reaction um i guess i've always been like my teams have made most of the lands so i've always been of the approach of like we don't we don't want to like stray from what we think is right, like what we think is the right play style just in order to beat our region because one, like we're confident we can do it if we play our game, but also because we don't want it to kind of hurt us in our consistency in the long run. And I do notice that it does hurt teams in the long run. Like a lot of the teams that do it are teams that haven't been to as many international lands because it will hurt you. Like I think if you keep playing that same kind of like inconsistent play style, if you go into like a, a land against like a European team that is like they're they're used to it or like and they can clearly see that you're gonna play that play style and like they just shut it down completely. Um I think a lot of teams get punished by that. And I also think that we've had a normally like normally by now we would have had another international land that we missed. And I think when you miss out on that, like teams have been playing basically their own region for so long now that it's kind of devolving even more into that counter your own region just because 
we haven't had that break where we get to see international competition because that's that's something that always changes things up is one when we get to see it but also when you get to go to the land and play against those other teams or scrim against those other teams that's when like th- things develop a lot differently then because then you come back from that land with ideas that you got from european and latam and apac teams you get all these different ideas and then you come back to your region with that and it changes everything up but we kind of miss that whole that whole land and now teams are just yeah they're just still playing their own region so it's just kind of kind of a stalemate in a sense and then people just yeah become more and more aggressive and stuff like that this was something that um i think i can't remember who it was on nip it was i think it was kamikaze or psycho tweeted about it maybe it was even in julio i i honestly can't remember Psycho definitely tweeted about it, I think. Yeah, so it would have been Psycho then. At at the Raleigh Major tweeted that they scrimmed G2 before the groups had even started and said that from that one day of scrimming alone, they learned more than they'd learned in months of scrimming Latin America teams. So there's there's obviously a, a huge amount of value that comes from playing other regions and you know the more events that we have and the fact that they're going to be majors which means that there's going to be a greater mix of teams from all the regions i think it's we're going to see the the skill ceiling of teams raise very quickly because instead of it just being like a, a quick pro league finals where teams are flying in like literally a day or two before yeah they're boot camping but it's like they're flying in like a day or two before factoring in jet lag they're not there for that long they play their matches they leave a major, you know, you're usually settling in a lot longer because you got to get there for media. Teams will continue to scrim throughout the group stages and then, you know, basically have to stop when the live event happens. So it's uh, it's going to be great. And it's it's honestly, it's going to be a big equalizer for the regions that don't historically perform as well on event on, you know, online and, and at certain events. So, um, of course, whenever we can actually have them. Since, you know, the world is currently canceled. So, um. But no, I, I think um, there was a good question that was actually asked by somebody before we, we will get into questions asked from the audience decently soon. But there was a good question that was asked from somebody saying, um, how do you as a coach push the boundaries of your own region? How do you assess what your region's strengths are? And how do you as a coach go about changing up your play style? And, and one of the ones that all or well, at least three of you have touched on so far is DZ. What is it about Dark Zero? You know, Twister mentioned it, Dizzle mentioned it, Poge mentioned it. What is it about DZ and and how do you as a coach end up pushing your own region and developing a meta for your own region? How much of that falls on your shoulders versus the team in the IGL? I think it's going to really depend on the team. I know like some teams, they're a lot more like uh like one big unit making all the strats as opposed to it might be just one coach making all the strats or three coaches making all the strats in SSG's case. Um, I think it's kind of with DZ, they're kind of different in just the sense that honestly, like it preparing for them is just, there's no point in watching like all their old, old VODs. Like obviously there's a point to see like their style and everything, but they're going to come out with something new every time like when we played them on villa like there's just a random cade in a weird spot that we just never seen before and it's it lost us around and it's like i think we reacted to it pretty well on attack wise 
like throughout the match, but like the first round that we saw, we're like, what the fuck is this thing? So <laughs> it's like we know how to get a Kate off from six different places, but then they found the seventh one. That's just like, <laughs> okay, I guess I guess I'll go fuck myself on that one. But um, yeah, like for them, it's all about just knowing how to like react to it and coming up with something in the moment, which is kind of where your IGLs are going to shine, right? Like sometimes you just got to rip a shitty and just go for it. But uh, when it comes to like making strats for the region, it's just kind of, it's very adaptive, I think. Like you'll see something that somebody's doing and you'll be like, oh, I kind of like that, but what if we did this on top of it? And then it just kind of like builds on each other and everybody else is kind of building on top of that. Uh, with regards to DZ, I know they don't scrim a lot of pro teams once the season starts, so I think that's kind of how they hide all their cheeky shit. So you scrim like amateurs? I think they mainly scrim like CL, even yeah. like lower than CL teams, honestly, because a lot of CL teams will copy that stuff and use it. So mm -hmm. I guess it's kind of like I know, like sometimes when we have something really creative, we won't use it even against CL teams because we know that they'll copy it and show their next scrim. So it's very, it's very adaptive in that sense. Like people are looking at each other's strats and building off of them, changing them, copying them. Yeah. I think DZ is like, like you said, that they're, they've always been an innovative team. I mean, I mean, you, you were on the team. I, I know mint is, I know Brandon is, um, like so, I know that I know the two of them are. I don't know about the rest of the guys on the team, but either even then, just between the two of them, I I know they would come up with some creative stuff. Um, and also, I like I know from teaming with Brandon. Brandon sees Siege and like like you can play it perfectly. Like he he genuinely believes like you could play Siege perfectly, and if you play it perfectly, you will win. Basically, um, I don't necessarily entirely agree with it. Like I see his point, but I don't entirely agree with it. Um, because I don't think you can account for everything in that sense. Um, but uh, it's just a unique way of playing the game. Like they, they basically they want to win the game without having to just outright like beat you in a gunfight, right? And I mean, that they, they're very good at, at pushing the game that way. And like you said, they scrim a lot of um, like T three teams even, um, and you just you don't know you don't know what's coming. But yeah. If you play them, odds are they're like prepping to like either hard count or something you're doing, or just like completely throw you off with something new. Um, yeah. But other regional perspectives, because I mean, Twister, uh, Tom, and and Dizzle, you guys have you guys have been part of teams that have arguably set the meta for your respective regions and even somewhat extent, you know, set a meta for the rest of the world for rainbow six, at least for a short period of time. So how, how do you, how do you go about doing that? Is it, is your focus on counter stratting the teams you play against as, as Pojo had said, some of the teams do, is it just trying to find a, you know, a, a new innovative way to play the game. Like we saw from empire who just kind of pioneered that, do the same thing every time, but just do it so fucking well that nobody can beat it. Like, 
from from my perspective, I, I just try and think of okay, what's the current play style of of the region that teams are going up against, and what's the pain points within that that you can that are the high risk of failure for them, and then attack them on on those. Because that's the if if you've got a particular strat that's effective in a particular way, then you don't want to meet it head on. You want to find out where it's weak and then find that pain point, that pressure point, and then push it. And then it just is cyclical, right? It just keeps on going, and that's just yeah. the way that the meta keeps going. So yeah, the same happened here with face because we found that uh, we found out a way to to play our game, and our other Brazilian teams didn't know how to adapt it to that. So as you said, it was a very structural game. We have a very solid game when we played against Latin teams. But when we went outside and played against European teams or NA teams that are used to play against this playstyle, we used to be to have a lot of problems. We couldn't adapt good enough. We couldn't show this playstyle this playstyle so so good as we did here in Latin because I believe the level difference and the the kind of play style uh, made everything heavier outside. But uh, last time at Rally Major, we had to decide when we were playing against Empire if we would play our play style or if we would adapt to to beat them on their own game, you know. And we had a conversation uh, before our game on the last night, and and we decided to 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 throw our strats, our, our preparing for our playstyle, and we decided to adapt against them. You know, playing a totally uh, a totally new game that we are not used to, and we said, okay, if we want to beat Empire, we can play our game. We have to play their game, and we have to beat them on it. So that that was the result of uh, Café Dostoevsky, that it was a bad map. We, we should win that one. But some players have some difficulties to, to get into the game. But after that, with Clubhouse, it could be really clear uh, what we were trying to do that day. And that's that's the difference, because FaZe was a very solid team here in Latin, because other teams couldn't adapt to our play style. But when we got outside and the other teams were used to, to play against this play style, it was uh, really difficult to us to adapt against it. I will never forget that clubhouse match. That phase Empire clubhouse match. One of the most stunning, honestly, one of the most stunning matchups or maps, I think. Up to this point in Rainbow Six Siege, I, I struggled to name more than maybe two, three or four other maps that were more shocking then absolutely utterly annihilating empire 7-1 on the map that no team could beat them on clubhouse comes out of nowhere and it's just like they whip out clubhouse and it was just it was empire's map. that and, everyone and, says that we would lost that match on cafe you know because clubhouse yeah. it was where then yeah i mean i remember with kicks we were watching you know when we when we got the maps ahead of time because i mean shocker if you're watching this the maps are not done live as they're showing up on your screen um we usually have the maps ahead of time. Sometimes we don't have a ton of, uh, we don't have a ton of time to be able to go through. But I just, I mean, when you see Clubhouse pop up to Empire, you're like, what is going on? Why? And and at that point, because of the way that the best of three works, you know that one of your good maps is going to get through. Um, but when I saw Clubhouse as the second map, I was like, phases looked really good in Raleigh. But I mean, Empire is at the. At, I think that was probably close to their peak, and it's just like. 
You got Clubhouse's map too. Like, dude, this is over. This is over if FaZe doesn't win map one. And then not only is it not over, but it, it's not even like a close one. You just you just crushed Empire. And we were all just fucking stunned. And FaZe was just like, just slaughtering every round, every single round. It's like, and and sorry to, dis to derail this because I do actually want to ask about this. How do you, how did you prep for that? How did you, what did you do to get the team in place for that? How much of that was you versus how much of that was the actual roster? Actually, that preparation was a special one because all the team were uh, involved on it, you know. Uh, all the team decided to play it that way and all the team contributed to that. We, we, as I said, at, at the last night before the game, we talked about the veto. I brought then the, the numbers and talked about the maps that we, we shouldn't play and what we shouldn't. And uh, someone uh, showed up and appeared with this idea. Oh, but if we played Clubhouse and we played that way. <laughs> uh, with that, we started working on that idea, just like a brainstorm. And a really good ideas came up. Uh, just like Cavera, you know, to to pick joystick that always uh, went to the new stairs, and it was always alone. So we we keep working on that way, and as I said, it was really unusual for us because we always have a better preparation. And one night we talked to each other and we evolved that game and said, okay, this will be our clubhouse and we will do this first round, this second round, and all the rounds were scripted and as Empire always played the same way, it came everything the way we wanted. So it was fun, it was good, and it felt, it felt really... It felt really good when we see all, all the preparation, all the, the time that we put on that on that game, you know, going well and, and beating Empire on, on their own map. But as I said, Cafe should uh, should be going for, for us on the first match, but on the first map, but it, it was not. So that felt a little bit. And on the third map, we couldn't get the, the same the same fire through the game, you know. It's a hell of a match. Yeah. I remember watching that one. That was a crazy matchup. It was a really entertaining match. I like that I got to cast it. I was very happy about that. I was very happy. Thank you. Um, Troy, you had a, a couple good questions, by the way, that you sent off last night. Yeah. Oh, fuck. I don't even have them up. But um, wait, did you wait? You mean the 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 group ones? Or yeah, the ones that you sent me last night. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um. Let me pull them up, sorry. Uh, I think we went through most of them, but uh, I guess another one I wanted to bring up, like you had been mentioning just um, from Twister talking about preparations. Uh, like it's kind of that, that day of prep. And I know, Tom, you're probably very familiar with this. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of teams don't, understand as much and i think it's something that sets a lot of teams apart in terms of that unpredictability and i think you even mentioned it uh twister about like how it, it's problem problematic like when you guys come to the or on phase when you guys came to the international competition kind of dealing with um you guys basically had to adapt more because teams would kind of show up with different play styles and i think it's something that shows in live tournaments is uh teams that can kind of sh switch up their play style from day to day um 
and I guess what what's your guys like approach on like can you even prepare for that I, I know that's something that like our team talks about trying to prepare for and like also just trying to negate more by being the team to kind of set the pace by changing things up like the day of a match um like when we did uh at SI 2020 was like we showed like two different villas like we played I think Villa one day against MIBR and then we played it the next day against DZ and we played it like with different bands and played like an entirely different kind of game plan and style. Um, but yeah, I guess just how do you, how do you prepare for that or how do you negate it? Like what, what's your guys kind of thoughts on that and uh, approach to it? Uh, I believe here uh, back on, on face clan, we, we had that kind of play style that we played uh, the entire season between Latin teams and they are really used to it and they were very comfortable on that play style phase were they were really good what on what they did but they were not really that good on trying to do that new stuff because some people were a little bit uh i don't know how can i say that but it, it was solid you know they they, they could be a, really, a little bit stuck so when we tried to prepare for something new we we had to have a discussion before it. We had to to bring the good points that the of advantage that could bring to us, and we had to prepare for the entire matches uh, with some time of uh, some time before. You know, not just like as just like happened with Empire. We usually when we went to Japan or to even to Italy to Milan. We we try to improve our our own game style and try to play our best siege, you know, on our our best form, uh, trying to trying to improve and to get better results against the outside teams just with our game. But we saw that we couldn't achieve a, a championship or a big tournament with just that. So all the team changed the mindset to started. Uh, trying to figure out new stuff, trying to play different styles, even if that means uh, you will not do what you what you did the entire season. You know that mindset came uh, playing multiple international events, and as you guys said before, uh, once you play against G2 on land, you learn uh, you learn so much better uh, stuff than when you play against all the same Latin teams or even in Japan when we played against Wildcard, we we learned some different stuff and we improved our bank with that, you know. So every land will, gives you a different kind of view on, on Siege and you can learn from that and you can come back, back stronger to your region and show this new stuff to the other teams that are not used to it. I think it comes down to the style of preparation and I think we touched on it or I think Parker brought it up like do you scrim to win or do you scrim to learn and I think that's where it comes down to if you you need to be scrimming different play styles to be prepared so that you're able to actually do it like that's kind of why we have five flex players right so that we can alternate between whichever style we want to do as much as possible. So it's, it's, it really comes down to the depth of how well you practice. Are you scrimming this particular map with the with the same operator bands on your side? So you're playing the exact same way every single time. And, and I think like what Twister just mentioned with, with Empire, that's 
and under preparation, the extreme counter strats to the way that they play is why you were finding this more aggressive meta, more chaotic, less consistent uh, formations or uh, use of utility other than outs other than maybe clubhouse. I think because clubhouse is all about breaching is is because teams don't want to be bunkered down into this one style of play or this one way which uh all their tendencies are, are laid out and can be easily abused yeah i'd agree with Shas in the sense that i think if you play one style if you show up to a land with one style of play you're just gonna get hard countered especially if people have seen it before like you got to show up and you got to be able to change things like right on the fly like, I know when we played Montreal, like, we, when we played Sonics on Villa, we were just, one round, we would just play balls to the wall, and then we wouldn't even let them in the building, and the next one, we would all be just chilling in sight, just waiting for them to show up, mm-hmm. and they didn't know how the hell to read us, so I think being able to change your style to kind of match somebody else's change in style, I think that's important, because you can't. Like, you can VOD watch Fnatic all day, but when they show up with something completely out of the blue, you got to be able to switch it up yourself. Yeah. You're just going to get slaughtered. I mean, I think it's... No, no, go ahead. I was actually going to talk about um, when you played Nip at the Paris Major and you C4 Julio in the same spot, like three rounds in a row on Consulate because you knew that they were going to do the same thing. Same thing, yeah. It's I think something that we've been pretty decent at is our pattern recognition, like with the Julio, with how he how he um breached consulate. I know like Troy was very familiar with a setup on Clubhouse that we had specifically for Empire. It would not work for any other team but Empire. Um, mm-hmm. so like we generally look at like a lot of patterns and tendencies between teams and players, and then we would sort of develop setups for that but we would happily scrim that setup against a team that it wouldn't work on just to see like what happened like a lot of a lot of ours is pure man hours and just throwing shit at a wall and seeing what sticks and then like you develop from that so a strategy like you sort of go okay this was the weakness of this strategy and this is how this team attacked it but then you sort of that rolls on to like another idea another strategy and then when you've you've seen so many things done so many different ways you're then able to implement so many different things like on the fly and sort of adapt to it. So I think a big part about our adaptability has been like the early pattern recognition. And then we're just quite reflexive on that and playing around it. Um, as for play styles, you know, we've notoriously been quite weak against like the BDS style of play, the, the like the sheer aggression, um, which is something that, you know, we've, we've put a bit more focus on um, because it's a bit harder to lock down their patterns um so it's it's now that's probably the next part of the growing phase for us i think the the concept of throwing shit at a wall and seeing if it sticks is pretty pertinent too because it's like like i can go into a scrim and try to win it all day but like are we really learning if i'm jumping out of the building three three times a game like i know that'll work like i know i I know i can get a kill out of it like am i learning anything from that no like i'm gonna try stuff that i think may work maybe it doesn't I'd rather lose a scrim and learn than win a scrim and lose a match. Like, like tempo was rocking our shit in scrims. Like, I wouldn't say rocking, but like they were, they would beat us on a few maps. It'd be close maps, and they like, they said like free SM when they picked us, and we we're like, the fuck? Okay, we'll see. <laughs> and like, I just don't understand. Like, like sure, you can you can be like, okay, let's try to play this scrim and let's just go like, play like a match. Like, you can do that, sure. But if you do every scrim like that, like you're not gonna, you're not really learning. You're just kind of 
doing everything how you would. Like I can, we can jump out a window three times and it'll work every time. But like, I don't want to show them that every time. I don't want them to think that I'm going to do that every time or else it won't work that the next time I try to do it. Right. Yeah. I believe having the balance between the scrim styles, it's really important to to build the team mentality. Because once you play to to try out your strats and to try out your setup, you are playing a, a, a kind of way. And when you are playing to try to adapt to every situation and try to adapt to everything that the other team is trying to do against you, I believe it's a different mentality. You know. Because once you in one of them, you are trying to to improve your your players' uh, mindset, your players' uh, adapt system, and you know your your team playing and all that kind of stuff. Once you the other the otherwise, when you are playing to do your strats, you are trying to see what goes wrong in the strat, what what works and what needs to improve. So it's two different. Uh, two different screens ways and I like to do both here because once you are building new players you you like to have both with them both place uh, yeah I think that makes sense I, I was I gonna know, say makes... if, sorry you go, go? Ahead. go ahead okay no I was gonna say yeah I think it it's good to have a, a kind of mix uh you want to be able to have your kind of core and like fundamentals down and just so everyone's comfortable with your defaults and like make sure your chemistry and all that, like everything's on point in that sense and playing to win obviously is uh, a way to do that. But yeah, you can't always be playing like that. And you do have to like literally mix up your bands, like, like Tom said, or like play against teams that play different just to kind of like force yourself to have to deal with it because you're going to have to deal with different things in a match. Um, yeah. Go ahead, Parker. I was just going to say being uh, evident or being conscious of time. Um, I wish that we could make this like a six hour podcast, but I'm well aware that people have, you know, mm -hmm. prior commitments. Um, so I, I appreciate that everybody's on here, especially Dizzle now that it's like 6 a.m. for you. Um, yes. But um, let's, it, I would like to, like I said, there's a billion different topics that we're not just going to be able to cover. And it is, unfortunately, it's a, it's both a blessing and a curse. I, Sorry? It was one I wanted to ask. Um, is, is it the Echo one? Yes. Yes. This is what I was going to move us on to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I wanted to ask about your guys' opinions on this because I've seen a lot of people like voice their opinions on Twitter. I, I don't think I've seen any of you guys mention it. Um, and I haven't mentioned it either, but it's something I really agree with. And people have been saying like playing with the Echo kind of auto ban right now because of the state he's in with his, his invincible yokai bug. Um, that's been really refreshing. And I honestly really agree. It's just, it's been so nice. Just, he's just, you don't have to deal with them. And then you can have more flexible bands because of it. Um, or other teams can have more flexible bands, but it's, it's refreshing. I, I don't even know exactly how to describe like why I, I'm not entirely sure, but I'd like to hear your guys takes on it, but I, I like it a lot actually. I think it's refreshing because it's one, obviously it's one less thing to worry about, but it's also taking away someone that wouldn't, quite likely be picked and is rather static on the defense right so it's more of a mobile game and more proactive kind of from from the defense but uh i like it uh just, uh, do i think it's good long term i don't know uh let's see how it pans out i just think it's one of those pain points within the game 
that can be difficult to deal with for, for attackers, right? So it's way more pleasant to play as an attacker. Uh, it's kind of melding, molding the topic slightly, but it's it just it's because the game needs more soft counters. And that's what we're going to see with the next patch as well. When Ace and Malusi are added, you need more soft counters to a lot of the things. So it doesn't tax either EMP economy, explosive economy, or Intel economy. Yeah. I mean, I think it's allowed for a little bit more creative freedom on defense as well. Cause it's like one of those things, right? Like you're either someone is banning echo hundred percent of the time, or if he's not being banned, then it's like, well, someone make sure you play an echo and then we'll work around it now. Especially because, like, he has impacts now. Like, he's just so much more useful, like, everywhere. Um, so somewhere that you might not previously have used him, now that he has impacts for, like, either wall denial or hatch denial, like, the impacts are so useful. And the operators that do bring impacts aren't that great anymore with a lot of them receiving nerfs. So Echo is now probably the best impact operator to have. And that's outside of his yokai. So, like, you're almost trolling if you're not bringing Echo if he's on. So with having him off... Now you can start to do a little bit more, like Shas said, a little bit more um, assertive on defense without just having that echo player. So yeah, it, it has been quite liberal. I, I think a big part of it too is like with echo gone, like you can ban Maestro and then you just don't have to deal with those kind of things. So like, I feel like with both of them up, the game is super like... Like, you feel just boxed in when you're on attack when both of those characters are up. Like, it's just, there's so much to deal with. Like, you need an IQ, you need a Zoe. And then on top of that, let's say they bring, like, a Smoke and a Wamai with two shields. Like, you got to clear, like, the whole goddamn kitchen sink before you have to do anything. So it's just kind of, like, it's freeing in that aspect, too. Like, it's just a one, one less thing on the checkbox to deal with. And, like, I think that's why you see a lot more creative bands now, too. Like, you can actually ban Wamai now. You can ban even stuff like Jaeger if you wanted to. You can ban a lot of cool, like, interesting operators that you wouldn't normally see otherwise. And I think you can even ban attackers, too, now that you don't have Echo on the board. Like, you can get away with banning certain attackers as well. What happens the most here in Latin with this Echo Auto ban, it's the some of the laziest things. Just ban Valk as well, ju just to not IQ the game. So that's what we most see here. But this flexibility of bans, it's a really interesting thing to see, especially in the moment that we are, we are right now. Because we have so much different operators and with the same bans, we, we, we have to see all the all the same playstyle uh, over and over and over again. And with this possibility of banning other kind of stuff, you have to readapt and you have to see other Siege playing on, on the defense. Because every time that you were Echo ban, the Mira ban, and that's it. You have to play with all the other stuff. So you can more focus the, the ban against some kind of things that like to play you know, uh, Maestro, as Pojo said, or they like to play like uh, Goyo or they like to play Wamai. So th that's more interesting for me because you see more more diversity in the matchups. I think it just shows how how much Echo needs a nerf yes. or how much we need more bands. I think that's the biggest thing that it's really shown. Or, yeah, yeah. both. Or both. Well, also, I think Echo is just so... Like like what Tom said, it that we need more soft counters in the game. I think yeah. it showed that as well. I guess it kind of transitions to something else I wanted to ask is just like, 
like what kind of i guess it's kind of a broad question um but like i guess it kind of a what you guys think the state of the game is like right now like who do you think there's certain ops that need buffs or nerfs or do you think there's like a certain type of op that we need um like i know that i think yeah we we need more we need something else to deal like some solid thatcher alternative to deal with like stacked ads's and wamai's um like in in one spot something to deal with like that protecting a bunch of shields or um when Belusi comes in there's going to be way too many uh indestructible gadgets and something to counter that um someone maybe someone that just brings like a bunch of mini explosives that can only deal with like shields and uh i, I don't even remember what her gadgets called Malusi gadgets and then banshee banshee and then bulletproofs all that like we yeah we need more options i think on attack and uh yeah the echo ban has definitely made you feel that you can deal with all of it better because yeah there's less to worry about um or you can ban one of Omai or maestro and then there's even less to worry about and it, it makes it more reasonable to deal with again i think i think Wamai having a shield is a big thing like him having a shield is just so broken i don't know who thought that's still a viable choice for him to have like that was as bad as Echo having a shield. Like, would you argue? Would you argue that if you remove the shield, that he should get another magnet, so it's on equality with Jaeger? Hmm. Because then, why would you pick a Wamai outside of Capital? Like, that's true. Yeah, you could argue that maybe. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be opposed to that. I'd rather him have one more magnet than a shield. I don't think it's too bad, especially considering like they have the charge time. So like you wouldn't get that extra magnet until pretty late in the round. I think that I think that'd be okay. And come really um, late. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, which could make him value his life a little bit more, like Legion, right? Because then it he can save the early round like util dump um for like the first line of defense for like the shields and the castles and, and like the the corners that you sit in. And then you'd sort of make him like the link player rather than the front line because then he can move back towards the execute for like nades out of corners, smokes, those sorts of things. So I think it'd be fine. Um, I think, uh, I mean, I, I can't see a, a Thatcher alternative coming soon. Um, one of the proposals, I think, is if you had an EMP effect on Carly's gadget. Um, so she has the shockwave, which destroys things. Um, but if you added an EMP effect, effect after the fact it'd be a lot more reliable for getting rid of like mute jammers and kaids like around corners or on concrete walls those sorts of things but you could also use her to like let's say on on pixel we'll, we'll say for the sake of this podcast on fa um that you know you've got like the two the two ads and a shield that are tucked in there if carly just were to like repel piano and put one straight on the side of the wall then the shockwave goes through the wall destroys a shield and she, um, the EMPs destroy the ADS. Sure, it's like quite powerful, but it's also Carly, right? So it's not quite the same. So she's sort of covering two operators, but her overall kit's pretty weak outside of her gadget. Yeah, I think a slight buff to Carly would kind of even out the Thatcher band like better. Now. Yeah, because I, I think Carly's actually in a decent spot now. I think she just needs just like a tiny little bit of EMP, just a smidge of EMP. Oh, Sounded think... sound great as well. Yeah, you did. He sounded great. I think, I think uh, it happened like, right during the Wamai 
I think we were talking about Omar. Omar we, we, that it was stupid. And then um, <laughs> I, I agreed, but then I countered with the fact that if you remove the shield so that he's on some kind of parity with Jaeger, that you would add a magnet. And then mm -hmm. at least you have two different styles, one that can counter uh, Capital and it just does Jaeger's job with the same depth. Like it counters the same amount of utility, but it does it in a different style. Mm -hmm. and, and then then I said that you could then have him rather than being like your front line, you could put him at the front line with a few of his tools to like protect the shield and the, and the initial setup. And then he can play link and then move back to site. And then he can set up like his final couple of Wamais for engagement um, for your execute. Mm -hmm. So it would change Wamais utility a bit. I'll make him more of an active operator too, as opposed to like a passive one, which we complained about like passive utility. Just oh yeah. Yeah. Over everything else. That was something that was, uh, I saw Bacon tweet about it today and Veli got in on it as well. Um, where it's just like, if half of the defenders die, their gadgets are still on the field. If the attackers die, they all basically die with their utility. The one question that I did want to ask is, we talk a lot about a Thatcher alternative, etc. Why is Twitch always removed from this conversation? Why are there not ways to tweak Twitch's drone or her gadget in some capacity because she used to be to a certain extent the Thatcher alternative back in the day obviously not used uh, the same and with limitations but a lot of times grouped into that same category obviously we're at a place right now where nobody runs her she's fallen off the, the face of the earth why is there no conversation about bringing Twitch back whether it be changing the drone or changing her gadget to, to actually make sense well the, oh. the biggest problem with it is that the thing like one of the big ones that is abused when Thatcher is banned is mute and mute is Twitch's hard counter. So it's like, it's hard to even get use out of the Twitch drones because there's mute chambers in the way that you can't deal. With. And they're vulnerable as well where Thatcher's are indirect, right? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And Once you yeah, know a Twitch I'm... is on the board, it's super easy to deny it. So yeah. yeah right. But let's sit around whatever's important and so wait for it to come. How do you change it though? That's yeah, the question. Invisible. That seems to be the fun thing to do. I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they got to be invisible. Like, it's it's got to be something ridiculous to keep it alive. Because that, I mean, that's the problem is that it's yeah, it's so vulnerable. It's on a drone. It can be jammed. It can also just be killed in one bullet. Um, so either like more of them invisible, or they're like, or they're tanky and like can take multiple hits. Um. I don't see that working. That, that could be that could be bad. <laughs> that could be very bad. I so mean, you could also you could also make an argument like map design, right? Because yes. people were harkening for like a castle buff, and I didn't. I thought that was a little bit silly. The shotgun's great, though. I agree with that. But it's it's actually the map. I, in my opinion, like in that case, it's the map that needs to change. You need to have more integer steps where you can put castles. You can come up with more inventive setups, so then it buffs castle indirectly. And maybe it's the same like with this whole idea of being locked out with a with a Thatcher ban is that the maps need to change so you can actually use grenades over the top and and mm -hmm. other indirect routes because the, the the I don't think you can make the Twitch drone safer like invisible without it becoming meta must pick hundred percent never going into anything else. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a dangerous line that you you walk yeah i heard of using the twitch drone 
and it has like a little EMP, like the dart is an EMP almost, and it can like see through walls and give you almost like an IQ scan. And, but it only disables things for a certain amount of time. I mean, that, yeah, could, that, be, that could work. Yeah. So you can see through the wall. You can see like a Cade. I see it, disable it, but you only get like a couple charges. And then you kind of have your window to kind of make it work, almost mm -hmm. like Thatcher's intended to be. And that way the drone is safe because you can do it from outside of things once you get your map control. Mm -hmm. That could be an alternative. I would rather a new operator that has a very similar thing, but is that, and then you open Twitch up for more things like taking the Goyo shields down and, and things like that. So rather than stacking everything into like one particular character, you just diversify the operators a little bit more and that's yeah. a new operator. Yeah. And um, like I, I pointed out with your, with your crash, if you added like an EMP effect to the, the aftershock of Kali, so if she shoots a thing, it does its drill, it shocks, and then it like disappears with an EMP charge effect. Yeah. And it also have a very similar effect to, to exactly mm -hmm. what we're talking about here, which is another way to buff her and bring her a little bit more viable. Because at the moment, she's like just not dependent or reliable against like tricky caves. Like if you put them on concrete off, off of hatches or in certain spots, mutes on different sides of walls. Um, mm -hmm. So she'd be a lot more versatile and useful if she did that. At least to hurt the, the interim while we're, we're living without a patcher alternative. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in a perfect world, what I would have loved to have seen, and there's no way to go about doing it. And I think I talked about this on one of the podcasts earlier is it's like Ash's gadget and Thatcher's gadget aren't operators. They're just like secondary gadgets that people bring. So you could have like a bunch of people bringing EMPs or stuff like that. And instead, it opens it up to more counterplay. But I mean, there's no way we could have foreseen that being necessary way back when. Right. Mm hmm. So it's, you can't really, I mean, I guess you could in theory, like completely rework it. Like they just kind of, they took Tachanka's gadget away from him. I mean, I guess you could do the same with Ash and Thatcher, but I feel like if you touch Ash, everybody would just revolt. Yeah. Um, um did you have one last question? Cause if not, I was going to move on to questions. Cause I'm like, I, well, I wanted to say this before uh, the crash was that we're running short of time and okay. there's some good questions here. Did you have anything else? Um, I was just going to quickly comment. It was something that we mentioned when the, the stream crashed and whatnot. But, uh, and it, it kind of what you mentioned, I think, with what Jordan had tweeted. Um, just the fact that, like, the, the operators that are dealing with, like, a lot of the problematic things, uh, so, like, Ash, for example, or Zofia, that are dealing with, like, your bulletproofs and your, your evil eyes and shields and all that, they're, like, your first people into the building. So they're, like it used to be earlier in the game that they were good entries because if they died, it didn't matter too much. But now it's like if they die, it can really mess up your whole round. And I think Tom mentioned it. It's kind of why people are going into that like just man advantage kind of style where they just they just want to get a pick because if you get a pick on the ash and then you have all these shields and evil eyes on the site, you know that you're gonna have a very good site setup because they won't be able to deal with it. And I think, yeah, I think that's a bit problematic. Uh, I'm not entire. I'm not sure if you guys have any ideas of how that, how that could be fixed necessarily, but uh, yeah, I do think it's a bit problematic. Let them pick up gadgets. That could be cool. You like pick up like less of it though. Like Ash dies with two charges. You can pick up one Ash charge. There you go. 
I, th I think it just comes down like uh, you, you, everyone kind of missed my little rant, but uh, it was just it's just the soft counters. Uh, it's even exploring new methods of dealing with things like uh, one of the examples I brought up before was the Banshee. So if you had to dump two magazines of ammunition into a Banshee, but at least you could remove it, it would it wouldn't lock you out of rounds which is what you're kind of experiencing now if you get picked or, or something else you just cannot deal with with certain things um so even like carly being able to open up the mirror shield or uh even be able to shoot the evil eye such that it glazed the glass so they couldn't see through it and the only way they could use it to see would be to open it for example like small interactions which allow um operators that wouldn't usually be able to deal with something at least some way of dealing with it even if it's more awkward and even if you had to dump two mags into a banshee that opens up interesting counterplay about peeking when they're shooting it and then you need to bring a second guy to cover that so that's the kind of avenue i think we need to go down yeah like dmr sort of destroy deployables and stuff like that like make them a yeah. lot stronger and more versatile and you know straight away lion will be bringing a 417 and docker be will we you know, a little bit more meta, like these current, like sort of B tier operators would, would start being brought a bit more for teams that like to do more of those sort of setups. You just have a little bit more versatility than stuck in this, you know, like Sledge, Zofia, Ash, Too Hard Breach. Yeah. yeah. Making all those choices like actually viable as opposed to just memes. Like DMRs are just in like such a weird spot where they just don't really fit in the game because they're just, why would you bring one when you can have a 50 round bullet hose that headshots people in one shot. Especially with which operators have DMRs. Like if you're Twitch and you're bringing the 417, you're fucking nuts, right? <laughs> and it's like same with yeah. same with Lion. Like I couldn't get over the fact that Callout was running the DMR on Lion. And it's like the vector that he has is so good. You know, like I didn't. The only real time. Teammates that would disagree with you. Sorry? I said, I got some teammates that'll disagree with you. They, they don't like the, the vector? Nade and, Nade and Bosco love the 417. Lycan loves the 417. Okay, Bosco's so never met a DMR he didn't like, though. This is true. I'm just saying. That, 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 that DMR is crazy. It's not it, bad. It actually is. It's not bad. It's just, I mean, until Lion got it, you just never run a DMR over the, the F2. The only real operator where I think the DMR made a ton of sense for the longest time was Blackbeard, but that's just because that thing was so broken. Mm -hmm. um, and the scar is, is whatever um, do you not yeah. think that the only way that they can mess with guns is to add different attributes and that would mean like okay well you can headshot with the DMR but you can't otherwise and then you could give weaker guns on defense like the UMP the ability to headshot and then the stronger guns wouldn't be able to headshot so I think that's the only way you can mix up the guns that's, I mean, that's janky that's janky you, you touch the one shot headshot mechanic and it's that's Dude, you piss so many people off. Like, and don't get me wrong. I, I don't care if it's popular or not. I think the fact that every single gun kills with one shot to the head is a terrible balancing decision. And it's it's kind of painted guns into a corner because, you know, unless you make recoil significantly harder on every single gun, especially the ones with high fire rate like the F2 has, or, or even the SMG11 has, it, the fire rate's always going to win out, right? Like, if you made it so DMRs were a one-shot to the head whereas every other gun was like 70 damage or something along those lines sure but people would lose their goddamn minds so i agree yeah, with you by the way tom i totally agree with you on that one six though 
because mm-hmm. Vegas was the same. Like it's a core philosophy of, of Rainbow Six. Vegas was the same, and the Famous was the thing in, in there is you could ban like five things in a custom lobby, and the Famous was always banned in in custom lobbies in in Vegas. Yeah, just because it was the same thing. And they never touch with fire rate. They've never ever like they changed the numerical value of the fire rate. And I think banned its MP7, but that's it. And the reason why that I understand is because. In order to change the fire rate, you have to change the audio. You have to change the visual. There's a lot more work and it, it sucks because it's like changing the fire rate on certain guns would be a really suitable, suitable change, especially like with the UMP. A lot of people say, oh, buff the UMP, blah, blah, blah. All you really need to do is increase its fire rate and it would be better, but they'll never do that, which is frustrating. There was a TS patch where it had a higher fire rate for some reason. Really? But yeah, it was really weird. I don't know why, but. Or maybe it was just like an audio bug, but I don't know. That thing, there was one TS patch where it was like, and it was just really weird. I know they changed I, the fire rate on the, the AA-12 at one point, but that was that didn't require any real tinkering. They just made it so there was a delay and it was slower. But um, if that's it for this, we'll move on to the, the, the questions. And let's just do this really quick. Like, Unfortunately, we don't really have the luxury of time to dive into these. So let's let's look through the questions that have been submitted. Um, there's a lot of really good questions. Yes. We'll have to have we'll have to have all of you on. And some of them require like really in-depth answers. Things from like, what do you provide for the team? How have you, you know, how do you think you've individually shaped coaching, etc.? But just we're gonna do the the same order where it goes Dizzle, Shaz, Twister, Pojo Man, and we're just gonna kind of have to rapid fire this. But uh, this one caught my eye from Ice Cold. He asks good questions every time. What is the least known slash least obvious task or responsibility involved in your job? Shit, I don't getting... know. <laughs> I got mine ready. I'd say getting PCs set up for players so that they're ready to go. Just like if we, like when we move into the facility, just making sure everything's loaded up on their PC, their games, everything else, just so that they have less things to worry about. Okay. You can jump in actually. Fuck order. Just just go if you've got it right. Uh waking people up. Mm. Alarm clock. That's that's one of them. Uh, like the my guys like just know to be awake at this time or help It's very rare, theory. but sometimes you just got to po- poach has wake some people up. Poach has some sleepers on that team. <laughs> Geo is a one. sleeper. Keep some it's, players. I've, I've heard I've heard Bolo's oh, a sleeper too. Yeah. No, Buzz. I'm, oh, okay. I don't think he's ever slept in. Your team's really embraced that. the good night meme, hey? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's um probably for me, it's like just proofreading and, and going over any sort of like social or media interviews that they're doing, just framing everything for them, just mm. to make sure it's presentable. Twister, you're last. <laughs> keeping, as I said, keeping the player's passport because some of my players were new... <laughs> For um, like losing their their passport, so he he said, "Oh, you are more responsible, so keep it for me, please." <laughs> so... Didn't the same thing happen to LG in Croatia? Uh yeah, I, heard, I think Doodle briefly uh, lost his, but he yeah. got he got it, he found it. I heard they yeah. woke up and were like going to the airport or something like that, and they'd left in the hotel or something along those lines. And I think Sl- Slash was like, "What the fuck." <laughs> Well, I'm pretty sure it was like they got to Germany and then he couldn't find his passport or something. Like it was it was something bad. 
that happened in rally. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound I'll fun. not go into details. That doesn't sound fun. Uh, yeah, doesn't sound fun. You have a question, Troy? By the way, um, I was gonna also ask one of Asgold's, but ask, ask. Like... I'll find one that's not his. All right, because I, I had, I liked those ones. They were good. Um, yeah, they were. Um, this is an interesting one for you guys. Uh, what would you rather choose? Uh, to work with a team that's very talented but hard to coach, or a team that's struggling individually but very susceptible to coaching? Uh, that was. That was actually how I ended up where I am. So, like, I got a, I got an offer to coach another team. I'm not going to say who were they were, but uh, let's just say they were overpaid, and like they were they were decent players, but like, like everything I would say would just be like met with like, oh, but what about this? Like, this will happen. And it's like mm-hmm. if you give me like a what about this every for everything I say, like obviously that's good a lot of the time. Like just so that you can like bounce back and forth, but if everything's met with like, oh, it's just not going to work, then like I don't know how you're going to make that work. So like I took like a way bigger pay cut to work with, I thought more way more coachable players, and then that's how I ended up where I am, and that's how we're ended up being a pretty decent team now. So I'd agree. You'd always want to go with people uh, like a team that's coachable because you like you're a human too and you you want to have impact on what you're doing every single day, right? So it it would be absolutely soul destroying to go coach a team that's not willing to uptake any of your ideas or thoughts or any of your coaching. Mm-hmm. Same thing because otherwise if you you look to a team that you uh, they are not coachable but they are a good roster you probably will have no impact with them or will have a hard impact. So it, it's not that satisfactory. Uh, it's not that good to go then. So it's better a coachable team. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'd be happy to do either. It just depends on like why they're difficult to coach. Because um, there's great satisfaction in turning a bunch of like talented individuals that maybe have a chip on their shoulder into a cohesive unit that could be something really good but if they're literally just uncoachable and they're just five star individuals and have no interest in being part of the team then yeah 100 percent you you take great um stride in, in developing coachable players into a, a single unit and teaching them about those sorts of things which i think esports is something uh that you see in general compared to most other traditional sports right is a lot of these players don't come from team backgrounds like like Troy, you know, you come up in hockey right now into esports, so you have that. But like, I, I'm guessing like there's been a lot of your teammates that have never had that exposure at like a, a young age to team and teamwork and atmosphere that are now joining esports and having to learn how to be a part of a team as like a young adult. Mm-hmm. Next question comes from IR Sisgod and said, "Has there ever been a scenario where you thought to yourself, I don't know how to deal with this problem?'" <laughs> Could be anything. Could be player conflict. Could be a coaching moment. Could be a certain meta, an opponent. I think everybody runs into that. If like so, yeah, what's, just... what would be an example, by the way, if you feel comfortable sharing? This wasn't necessarily as I was coaching, but it was when we were playing NIP on like Clubhouse at Invitational. Like they just had like four shields set up in the way we were coming. We we're just like we just don't have the explosives to deal with this. Like, I just, I like got to the wall, droned it. And I was like, I don't know what the hell to do. <laughs> like, and that's where, a, that's where a good coach would have like, 
in a timeout and been like, yeah, this is what we need to do, blah, 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 blah. Maybe we need to do this, but, I mean, that didn't happen, so... That's uh, that's eventually how we ended up losing for the second game against NIP. So, I mean, that was one time where it happened, and I didn't know what to do. So, <laughs> there you go. Uh, that... I go on to it. So sorry. No, you. That already happened with me playing against you guys back there in the Paris Major, where we were playing a coastline against G two, and they put us on a play style that we are not that used to. It was the third time that we were playing the their G two roster, but uh, I can't remember especially why. But that one was the tougher one, you know. They they pushed us on a game that we. We are not uh, used to on a play style that uh, I didn't, that I didn't could find a way to to reach in, could find a way to adapt to it, and that was an uh, extremely difficult situation to me deal with as a coach. Um, did everyone answer or Tom? You still got. Uh, I I run into them all the time, uh, like um. Esports is still very young, and I come from an engineering background. I'm used to numbers and zeros, right? I'm used to just very logical things that don't have very niche and, and kind of lots of different factors of it. Like a player could be unhappy because X, Y, or Z, or something could be working for something which I, I can't even perceive because it's the opponents and I don't get to hear their comms. It happens quite a lot, and I just think it's a life school you've got to develop to kind of look at things logically and assess the situation, ask for help. Like, if because in some cases, the players are more experts than you as well. You've got to say, okay, how do, how do we fix this and, and kind of group together and work through things logically and then test it to overcome certain things. Yeah, I, I think Tom's right. It's very much about perspective, right? Like, I'm, I've probably even met with a few of them but i've never considered it like a shit i don't know what to do here moment i've just always treated it as like excellent this is like a brilliant opportunity for me to like upskill um you know ask listen um learn um and then from there you just sort of grow and develop as a person so i treat them more as like development opportunities rather than you know a crisis yeah you have a question Troy? yes i do wanted to make sure we're moving on um uh, this comes from Sako, um, and I guess, I mean, I have my answer to this. I might add in on it, but uh, does a player improve more individually by playing the game consistently or watching VODs consistently? I guess, like, what do, what do you guys think uh, is the, the best way to consistently improve at the game? Uh, or do you think it's a balance of the, of the two, perhaps? But yeah, what are you guys' thoughts on it? It's going to be really player-dependent, if yeah. anything. Like certain players just learn more from playing the game like seeing like the result like cause and effect of what happens and then mm -hmm. like being like oh maybe i shouldn't do that next time whereas some people will just like watching the mistakes happen to other people they'll be able to see the same thing yeah and i think a bit of both i think is a good kind of middle ground like some people get more from other things just depends yeah i'd yeah, argue I, I that think... go on sorry yeah. No, no, you, uh, no, you, no, you. No, I'd, I'd argue that uh, the player has to play quite a bit individually, and then rather than necessarily watching vods of other people, it's watching your own play. Mm -hmm. Hundred percent. I think with the state of the game that it's devolved to, it's so much better just to to play scrims um, a couple a day if need be, and then yeah, like 
record your POV with comms and go back on that and reflect on that. Ask your teammates for help if you're not sure. Like the environment in which they need to improve in is very, very hard to do with ranked hours. Um, but you know, there there still is that that sort of fine line where you can't stay too far away from the game because at the end of the day, like you know, Joe Boy seventy two that spent two thousand hours so far this season playing ranked. Obviously, he's gonna, he's ready for the the twenty thousand and seventy fifth gunfight he's taking. So it's it's a fine line, but it's sort of like gets to the point where it's detrimental. Yeah, I think what you said about watching your own is probably the most valuable that anyone can do. Sorry, Twister, go ahead. Uh, agree with that. I believe that um, some players uh, are different from each other, and I believe some players have the the ability to know from the the others' mistakes. So I worked with players like that, like Psycho or Mav, that they were way more uh, statistical players and like to reveal VOD and like to study others' players' game. And I played with uh, players like PZD or Astro that way they were way more, you know, playing players. And they, they like to play and they like to see how their game improve in ranks, in scrims, and they improve themselves like that. If they don't play, they don't feel comfortable to play. They, they to play in official matches, you know, so they don't feel like they are evolving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a balance. I think it depends on the person. Um, I'm I'm one that like I watch a ton. I think that was the biggest thing. I think playing obviously is very important too. I think it's after a certain like Diz kind of said like after a certain point, like playing more is only going to do so much. Um, I definitely diminishing like, returns. Yeah, diminishing returns for sure. I think like for myself now, like I get way more out of watching like. Like if I just watch a random VOD from like one of the early games, I learned 10 times more than if I were to just like grind a ranked session, right? Um, You'll lose all your confidence in rank too. That is one. Brave little toasters <laughs> rocking your shit over your end. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I agree with that. I think uh, a balance and like Tom said, I think reviewing your own VODs is very important. Um, I definitely, I, I recommend that to any up and coming player. Uh, it's probably the the quickest way to get better individually is just reviewing your own vods. I think match replay soon. Pardon me. Match replay soon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Replay's coming. Yeah. That'll uh, yeah that'll be helpful. Even for me, it's it's when I stream. One of the questions that gets asked to me, and I don't know why I get asked this question of all people, given the depths that I play in, but it's like they'll ask me like, "How do I get better?" To which, I mean, my answer is like, I don't fucking know. I don't play at the top level. Don't ask me. Like, I just talk about the game. But if you, like, if you extrapolate the things from casting, like, how do you improve casting? Be susceptible and receptive, or be receptive to feedback. Um, seek out advice from people whose opinion you trust and, and respect. And rewatch your rewatch your own casts and listen to it is there anything that you you know you openly like cringe at or kind of wince at when you hear is it bad is there a moment where you were saying the same thing too many times apply the same thing to your own vods and a lot of people that ask this question aren't pro players because no serious pro player is coming to me asking how they can improve because they know that i have absolutely nothing of value to add but it's like if you're playing ranked and people are like i'm stuck in silver how do i get out literally record yourself playing for a full day 
Are you picking operators that, you know, actually help the team? What are you finding in your own VODs? Are you over peaking? Are you communicating with your teammates? These same things apply at the lowest levels that they do at the top level, obviously in, at to different severities. But if people aren't watching their own play and being open to feedback and, you know, admitting that they make mistakes and, and trying to fix them, then what's the point of this, right? Like nobody's playing a perfect game. So you have to realize that there are times where you could do better. And the best way to do it is to look for a pattern. As, as Dizzle said before, every team has patterns. And if you can exploit that, then you're golden. Make sure that you don't have a pattern. And the best way to do it is to watch VODs. I have a question, by the way. Okay. This is kind of a merger, but it's one that popped up. It's popped up a couple times, but the two that I'm merging are, are Versarex and KVZ. Um, and I, I mean, Versarex's question is about what do you look for when building a support staff? And KVZ's question is with the increase of support staff, how has your role changed? So I'm going to kind of merge them together just and do like a one-two punch. With coaching being so new, how do you begin to look for support staff? And then when you bring them in, how do you delineate roles? and you know divvy up what you will and won't be doing and how has it changed you as a coach i'm having this experience now i never worked with someone else before and here on furia i joined the team as head coach but they already had a coach here so uh, i'm figuring out that it's a way more uh, it's way more easier when you get someone to someone to share your your hard work and the the, the objectives that you have because when you work with other other person you you have someone to look at, to give another point of view if you are stuck on something that you you can't go through you you have something someone that will tell you if that makes sense if that's make not and someone to to focus on other kind of stuff, you know, psychologists, uh, analysts, and you know, even even the managers. It, uh, there's a, a way more productive way to to work with the players when you have all of them and make a a synergy between everyone and find out something that everyone can help each other to help the players. That's the most important thing. Just uh, like dividing up <clears throat> like roles, like like I have data who does like our analytics and all that stuff, and like he he'll give me like useful things even about the matches and stuff too. But like his main thing is numbers, stats, like what what can we do with those kind of things, and then it's my job to kind of like see those and kind of understand why they are the way they are and what we can do with them. Like it's my job to like know what to do with it is to find it. So it's kind of like a, like just a div division of the work basically. Now that I have him able to do that, I don't have to worry about that portion as much and I can focus on what those numbers mean or should we not even look at them that much? Are they relevant? I think that's an important thing too. Uh, the qualities I look for in support staff are some, well, some competency uh, in what you're trying to do, but like the main part that's more important is is a hunger to improve and to become an expert in what you're aiming to do, alongside uh, the third part, which would be uh, willingness to discuss. Um, like for example, 
Sua came in and I kind of showed him how we did analytics or how I did analytics. And he took on a lot of that to heart. But now he's also pushing the boundaries with what I gave him and he's expanding it further, right? Um, and now, uh, like, how has it changed? Before I was coach, analyst, and manager. And now I can concentrate on one thing and my cortisol levels are down here rather than all through the roof. Uh, yeah, I, I think exactly the same thing. I think the the work ethic is a huge thing, especially in coaching. It is sometimes just a lot of hours. There's no two ways about it. Um, there's a lot to go through. There's a lot to do. Um, so straight away, like you just have more hours in a day um, when you have that extra support stuff. Um, I think all of us here, it's we use them all a little bit differently. Um, like for Propel, he's obviously already super upskilled. Um, has been like a huge advantage um, to us in, in facilitating everything that I'm able to do. I've spent like a lot of time being that one-man army, like I said, in terms of like coaching analysts, but also like managing. And, and like I, I have a lot of responsibilities in, in Fnatic as well. So, you know, I'm able to, I think for me, like trust is a big thing in terms of like trusting the work's done and the work's done well. So I need to be able to find someone that I would trust to do the work and not have to double check it, which makes like it very, very difficult to find stuff. So I was like super lucky when Propel came available because um, I have a huge amount of trust in in sort of him as a person and, and the, the work that he does, which allows me then to focus on the other responsibilities that I have. So I think that's that's been the biggest thing for us. Mr. Troy, I'll let you get the last question. All right, final one. Um, mm, mm, there's two good ones. All right, we'll do we'll do this one. It's kind of simple. Um, but I guess what, what do you guys value as ter in terms of like a skill in a siege player or even a coach, but probably as a player, uh, what what skills do you value in players? I guess the most uh, when you when you look at players in siege, what do you find the most impressive in terms of uh, skill sets? Not tunnel tunnel visioning and being able to keep track of the comms as everything goes crazy. Yeah, I think I think communication would probably be the the most important thing, like just being able to like, properly communicate what you're doing, what you're thinking, what maybe we should do. I think is one of the most important things. I think that's why Bolo was such a good player when he first started like everybody thought like oh like is he going to be good or not like i think that was the biggest thing that kind of kept him going was like sure he can shoot but he's also really a really strong communicator mm -hmm. so i believe yeah. the capacity of learning and adapting through through his mistakes that makes a, a good player yeah, I think I think all very good points. Like the ability to like learn and develop, especially like individually, um, is super important. But I think communication is is one of the big ones, right? Like, um, we've had this philosophy that it doesn't matter like if it's the right decision or the wrong decision. Like if you're doing it together, then chances are it's going to pay out. Mm -hmm. Um, which just all comes from communication. And I think if you're able to communicate both in terms of speaking and listening, then you'll develop as a player if you're willing to learn. Agreed. Yeah, all right. communication definitely sets people apart for sure. Something that's been talked about at length, actually, uh, Poge has actually talked about it a ton, um, about how like good comms and just the ability to focus on that is so integral. And it's one thing that, you know, when you're on Accelerate, you talked about with roster moves as well, where how comms settled down after certain changes. Um, 
I'm actually going to, I was going to go on to that one last question, but given that there's a lot of coaches that I, I've seen in chat, and I know that there are people who are, are younger coaches, I'm going to ask one last question, and this didn't come from anybody. This is just um, a, a general thing, given that you are all such a wealth of knowledge. If you could give one piece of advice to a wannabe coach or an amateur coach to be better at what they do and to be the coach that every team needs, what would you tell them? Who's going first? Um, I would say that each team is completely unique completely unique and you can't necessarily take uh what i've done or what dizzle's done what anyone's done and necessarily replicate it word for word you need to look at the team that you're coaching and work out the biggest weakness they have and then work on building a foundation to overcome that weakness and then reset and once you've accomplished that and then move on to the next move on to the next move on to the next that would that would be my advice that you need to actually perceive it yourself. I can't tell you exactly how to fix your problem. You're the one that has the eyes on the ground. You're the one that needs to come to a conclusion and then enact on it. Agreed. I'd say for me, it's <clears throat> even like learn, learn from your players. Like, sure, you can teach them too, but like you're going to learn just as much from them playing as you are from like teaching them basically. Like there's a lot of things like I'll just see someone do something and be like, wow, I didn't even know you could do that. And just even just like generally, like even from just like a, like an overarching gameplay standpoint, like I think that was a big difference when I moved from, from dark zero to accelerate. And then we had gotcha as a coach, like not everything has to be like step one, step two, step three, like there can be, there's different ways to play the game kind of thing. So I think that was that was a big eye opener for me, just learning from everybody around you, whether it's the players, other support staff, be open to ideas. Yeah, uh, I think um, like a, a bit like Shaz said, like find your foundation, like tear it down, like tear the whole thing down, um, find a foundation and and then build upon it, um, and like ask and like listen. Like you don't always have to speak. Uh, wisdom doesn't come from telling people what to do. Um, ask and then shut up and listen. And don't listen to respond, but like listen to learn. Um, think about it and then come back with like a solid idea. Agree to all that. And I guess you you have to always improve as well in your game knowledge and your people handle knowledge. So it's always a different situation. And every day you have to deal with something different. So you have to be really flexible. Awesome. Well, thank you. There's, I just noticed there's a lot of people in, in chat that had uh, asked questions specifically. And it's, I don't know about all of you, if you, you know, if you're streaming or, or, or anything along those lines, but I actually have a lot of wannabe coaches ask me about what the best thing to do is. And I mean, I've never coached, so I can't give any advice based on my own expertise so but we have any uh any parting words any final words gentlemen where can we find you on the internet anything that you want to say before we go pojo maybe when the next digest is coming out i don't know maybe <laughs> just tell us you know 
It's ready. It's ready. When it's ready. Oh, oh. Really? you said it's ready. I got so excited. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? <laughs> That's what I heard. I heard. I heard it's ready. And I was just like, no when way. It's ready. When it's ready. Any, any parting words, lads? Nerf echo. <laughs> soft counters, soft counters, soft counters. Thank you for listening to my TED talk. I agree. About it. Twister Diz. Nothing. All right. Thank you for coming on, guys. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I don't know. You guys are, I, I, I love the coaches. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to end up being coach. I know it. It's gonna happen to me. It's bad. To you have to deal with us. Yeah. Just want to say thank you for the invite. Yeah, I, thanks for having, having us. On. I I appreciate all of you coming on here to talk. I'm I'm sorry that Pojo Man is well over when he told me he needed to leave. So TSM, <laughs> I apologize for selfishly it's holding. Okay. You. I've been I've been watching. Oh okay. I, I can do two things at once. I got two eyes. Oh. I'm feeling for Dizzle. I mean, no, I'm good. Yeah, that's yeah, 7, What time is it for you right now? Oh yeah, quarter, quarter past seven. It's perfect. That's 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 when you go to bed. Yeah, man. Yeah. Bedtime. Then you wake yes. up at then you wake that's up at four p.m. for scrims. Yep. Nah. nah it's, it depends. Like, it's it's the weekend. Yeah. No, it's Monday. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's still it's still the weekend for um for the other side of the world though. So like, mm. I'm not getting any messages from like london or, or ubi or anything so like i'm good yeah it's, like, 10, it's 10 p.m in london right now hours. so oh. yeah but it's like usually mean? like end of the day for ubi and they'll be sending off you know the last emails they don't want a response to straight away <laughs> changing the rules at the last second yeah it was uh getting uh like a panel on was always something that we wanted to do and I, when the name six on six came up it was uh, it, there were various different ways I wanted to play off of the six aspect of it and getting four people on, given that we have very conveniently have four regions, uh, which if we ever expand, will doom this podcast to immediate failure because then there would be seven people. But um, I, I really wanted to get representation from every single region on. So um, to all four of you, I greatly appreciated working around not just sleep schedules, but scrim schedules. Um, and for both Dizzle and Twister, I think it's, it's important that APAC and LATAM be as prominent as the other two, because for a lot of English speaking viewers, APAC and LATAM tend to be blind spots for them, I think. And there's a lot that I think the casual viewer could learn from seeing more from those two regions. So both of you in particular, I really appreciate coming on, um, and, and for Tom and Poge as well, much appreciated. So. With that said, that's uh, that's it for us. Uh, all of your socials will be included down below. It should be on Spotify and Apple Podcasts later this evening slash by Monday morning. So if anybody has anything to do Monday and they want to listen to it, well, perfect. There you go. I mean, I guess for you, Dizzle, it's, it'll be Monday night because you're in the future. But uh, aim to be up on YouTube within a day or two, hopefully. We had some problems with the, the last one. <laughs> So get it up as quickly as we can. But that's it for us. Thank you very much for tuning in. Greatly appreciated. Please do me a favor. If you've made it this far, follow the four gentlemen who decided to show up on our show. And we'll see you next Sunday. Take care.